Welcome. So many people have asked us to get on ex-law enforcement. And it seems all the videos we've done so far, Neil Woods being one, John Wedger being another, have had massive responses. Some of you may have recently seen me on Jack Mate. And fan favorite of Jack Mate is here today, Peter Blexley. He is a prolific author. This is a, a, one of James, our cameraman's all-time favorite reads, he said on the way in. Surprised to see Peter here, and he's probably going to have some questions <laughs> towards the end of, of this. So all your books are available worldwide on Amazon, I assume. They are, yep, yep. And um, whatever other links, all Peter's links are going to be in the description box below this video. So please go down, check him out. He's done copious interviews on other channels, but he says that he likes the various interviews and various stories, so endless content available on YouTube. Thank you very much for coming on, Peter. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so why did you want to become a cop? Mm, well, I was largely the product of a one-parent family. My dad left when I was about 10 or 11, and, um, you know, he had drink problems and he was physically abusive towards me. And, and so, essentially, it was good riddance to bear rubbish when he left. But that left me, my mum and my elder sister in a house that my mum could no longer afford. Um, so the house got sold. Uh, mum bought a flat that I moved into with her and my sister, older sister, disappeared off to her nursing training. So there I was, you know, by this time about 12 or so, 12, 13, no male role models at all that were close to me. You know, my granddad had died. Um, there wasn't any uncles on our doorstep, neighbours, friends, just no real male role models. And not surprisingly, I went off the rails a bit. Mm. Petty crime uh, largely flunked my education, which is a source of enormous regret because life would have been a lot easier if I'd had a few A-levels or, or you know, some something to fall back on. Um, and... I got a job, 1976, left school, wonderful summer, went fishing all summer, came home, and my mum said at one point, you know, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? In those days, you could get a job fairly easily. So I got a job as a warehouse assistant in Woolworths, good old Woolworths all those years ago, <laughs> and I loved it, slinging boxes around, a bit of banter with the warehouse manager, carting huge chunks of cheese down for the ladies on the deli counter, I got on famously with all of them. Pick and mix. Yeah, all of that, all of that. There was a sugar strike on at the time. Needless to say, our family never went short of sugar. But, you know, the, the benefits of working in a warehouse. Um, loved it. Um, was still misbehaving myself, you know, in the evenings. But, of course, I had a few quid in my pocket because I was working. And I was quite happy, but I knew my mum wasn't. So one night I came home to the flat walked into the lounge, and to my absolute horror, there was an enormous uniformed cop sitting there, one of the old beat neighbourhood bobbies, you know? And, of course, my first thoughts were like, oh, shit, what am I going to get Nick for? Um, but fortunately, this lovely man, you know, my mum had sorted it out for him to, to, to be there, and he sat me down and sold the idea to me of joining the police. Now, I'm only 16 at the time, so it was the police cadets. But he did such a great job that before he left, he pulled out the application forms, stuck them in front of me, and I filled them out. Wow. And a few short weeks later, I was walking through the gates at Hendon, 
of the Metropolitan Police Cadet Corps training college with a new short haircut and that was it. All of a sudden, the, the disciplines that I think I'd craved but had never sort of responded to at school was there because the physical training instructors were all former Royal Marines. You know, when they said, Oi, Blexley, down to 10 press-ups, you know, because you'd lent against the wall or your trainers weren't whitened properly, your plimps holes, not trainers, you know, or you had a crease in your, your PE vest and all that, down to 10, <laughs> kind of like, or what, wasn't an option because the or what would have been unthinkable. <laughs> you know, they would have turned you into a crowd in the blink of an eye, these fellas, you know. Um, and so so I, I respected that and I fell into line largely. You know, I still got into some scrapes and stuff, but but nothing like school or anything like, like that at all. And I thrived on it and I loved it and I got fit. You know, it was sport, sport, sport. I loved all of that. And learnt discipline, learnt a bit of self-respect, certainly learnt respect for others. And then after 18 months of that, I went up to the other end of the estate where the police training college was and became a PC. Um, you know, from somebody that flunked school, suddenly I won the prize for being top of my class in the training school. Um, and, and yeah, life quite rapidly transformed and then got posted as an 18-year-old rookie cop to... Peckham in South East London. So do you think that visit from that officer then saved you from being on the other side of the fence that I was on? Peter would have been hunting down someone like me. Do you think that that saves you from going into that lifestyle? Undoubtedly. Yeah. Without a shadow of that. He was such a warm, engaging kind of guy, mm. you know, and he, and he got me really quickly. You know, and he understood his audience, so he spoke to me yeah. in, in in such a way that I was just listening to his tales of policing, and he was selling the idea to me of what a good job it was, what you could do, the opportunities, yeah, and yeah, completely. Had you had any run-ins with the law? Well, well, I had a new pair of Doctor Martins a few months earlier, right? Steel toe cap, cherry red, ten lace hole. Um, very proud of them. The Sex Pistols era. You know, yeah, yeah. And to show them off to me new mates, we came out of what then was Bexley United Football Club, which is now Welling United, and we came out and there was an off-licence next door and I wanted to show off just how good these steel toe caps were. So I booted the front door of the off-licence, right, with a view of legging it, just juvenile teenage hijinks. But, of course, not being the sharpest tool in the box, I booted the off-license front door just as a police car drove past, oh. right? So that was it. I grabbed hold of me, slung me in the back of the car. I was thinking, oh, no, this is not good. Um, but, again, I, I, I don't know what it was, but these cops kind of got it. They knew I wasn't a career criminal. They knew I was being an idiot. They gave me the telling off of my life and sent me on my way rather than dragging me down the nick and that kind of stuff. Um, although it was very embarrassing when they marched me into the off-licence and, you know, made me apologise to the owner and asked him if he wanted to prosecute and he didn't and that, so that kind of stuff. So, um, again, you know, that if that had gone wrong, then I would never have joined the police cadets and wouldn't be sitting here today. And I probably would have gone down a, a, a route of crime. You said your dad was a disruptive force. 
after he bailed, were you missing him in any way or did you have any contact with him in any way? No, I didn't miss him at that stage. I didn't miss him. But, I mean, he just literally disappeared. You know, he never paid us a shilling, never paid my mum any maintenance, and I never saw him again until I had my first son. Now, my first son was born in 1988. I wasn't married to his mum. Our relationship was badly affected by my work because one day I got involved in arresting her brother unknowingly. So it was all very turbulent and up and down and really was never going to go the distance. But I vowed not to be an absent father to my son like my dad had been to me. And my boy is now 33 years old, my eldest, and we are like two peas in a pod. And we've had a great relationship over the years. And I've always been there for him, never let him down, always paid my dues and and saw an awful lot of him. I wasn't just a weekend dad, you know, I'd, I'd yeah. pick him up from school and all that, blah, 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 blah. And he's a wonderful fella. So, but when he was about three years old, my eldest son, I started to say, well, I'm going to get this question soon from this little boy. And he's going to say, tell me about your dad. In other words, his granddad that he's never seen. And I was thinking, do you know what? All I'm going to be able to tell him is the stories of drunkenness and him, mm. like, you know, being wicked to me. And that's not great. So I wanted to track him down. Now, at this stage, I hadn't seen him for well over 20 years. I was still in the cops as a detective. So I might have had access to certain things. <laughs> and, I, and I found him. And I found him easily, <laughs> got his telephone number and literally rang him up out of the blue, having, as I say, not seen or spoken to him probably for 25 years. Take us through that then. What was that like? That must have been a big deal for you to just call him up out of the blue. It, it, it was. Yeah. Um, you know, and my heart was pounding and I was very nervous and there was a bit of <clears throat> clearing the throat before I spoke to him, you know. And he was delighted to hear from me. Um, he told me that he'd remarried, but his second wife had died. Um, so he was living on his own. And before the phone call ended, we'd arranged for me to go up and meet him um, at his house. He'd moved up to uh, Middlesex, sort of northwest London. Um, and not long after that, I knocked on his front door. And that was really kind of spooky. You know, Um Went in, had a cup of tea. What was your thought process the moment you saw his face? Because he looked, must have looked a lot different. Yes, but um, he died, sadly, at the end of last year, age 96. So he had a really good innings. Um, but I was struck by how much like him I looked. Um, that was a bit kind of spooky. Um, and we sat down, had a cup of tea, had a lot of catching up to do, as you can imagine. And we got on really well. What was I, what really kind of shocked me was that obviously he fought in the war, so he was a member of ex-servicemen's clubs and, and and all of that kind of stuff up in northwest London. And he knew people in there that were cops that knew me. So he would talk about me to these cops. They knew the story that we weren't in touch. They would giving him regular stories and updates oh. about me, my life, and my career, completely unbeknown to me. And you thought he was just distant and cold. Yeah, yeah. So he clearly wanted to have some kind of... Um, I found out that he'd had 
brief and very unsuccessful contact with my sister, my older sister, um, and that was never to be reignited. And it was, and we, and we kept in touch. You know, we, I'd probably see him twice a year. You know, he might come down and see me because he was still driving at the time. He was sort of in his 70s. Um, or I'd go up to him. And then, of course, subsequent to that, I married and, you know, I had two more boys with my wife. And he was very keen and would get updates on them and, and all that kind of stuff. And then one day we were going, I'm a lifelong QPR fan, and where he lived in Northwest London wasn't a million miles from our ground. And I was taking the boys uh, to a midweek game during the school holidays, and I took the boys up to meet him. And uh, and that was quite a sort of a moment in their lives as, as, as well as mine. I wanted them to meet him. You know, he was never going to be allowed the opportunity to get particularly close to them, you know, number one, because he, he wasn't particularly paternal, but... I, I didn't feel he had that right to be honest with you. You know, it's fine for him to meet them, and 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 that was that was fine, but there, it wasn't really going to go much beyond that. I think my kids were a bit disappointed. Could he pull out a crisp twenty pound note and gave them each a score? And they were like, "Wow, they couldn't believe they were getting that much money." Um, but yeah, uh, and then ten years or so ago. Um, out of the blue, I got a phone call from a policewoman um, from where Dad lived, and he was on his own, of course, older. We, As I say, we have a couple of phone calls a year, but this policewoman was very strident and to the point, and she rang me and she said, your father has become a victim of crime. Who's going to look after him, you or the social services? Just like that. And I went, well, you know, excuse me, I, I, you know, I have a wife that I'm going to have to discuss this with and, you know, we've got two young children. Um, can I give you a decision in the morning? She said, yes, nine o'clock, no later. And I went, okay, all right, fine. You know, um, discussed it with my wife. Uh, we literally, and, and she said, yeah, okay, bring him, bring him here. Um, you know, he's elderly, he's vulnerable. Someone's got to look after him. So we did. Literally, me and a mate went up there the following morning, packed him a bag. It, it was clear by the state of the house, which I hadn't visited for a while, that he wasn't capable of looking after himself. We brought him back home, sold his house fairly quickly, then bought him a flat in a, a managed, you know, one of these sort of managed housing setups. He lived there happily uh, for about seven years, and then his vascular dementia got so bad that he had to go into a nursing home, which was local to us. Um, but they looked after him absolutely brilliantly, and he passed away on Remembrance Day, twenty nineteen. Um, You know, which Remembrance Day? It was the sun was shining, clear blue skies. You know, the whole uh, parade from the cenotaph and what have you was on the telly, and an old naval man bowed out on that day after a long life. It kind of had a a bit of loveliness about it. Yeah, and it's good that you reestablished the connection there as well. Well, I imagine after that first meeting with him then, you must have came out of that, your head must have been spinning and trying to process what had happened that day. I was really happy. Yeah. You know, because clearly there'd been a massive yearning for me as a young boy and a teenager and a man to want to have a relationship with my dad. You know, and and I can see when I look at 
young lives that go off the rails because they haven't got a a, a parental, a, a fatherly influence. I completely get that. I yeah. completely understand that. And the need for male role models for sons, and I would suggest daughters, of course, is really, really important. You know, feckless shagging and fathering kids that you're never going to be a part of is really something that a route that people should not go down. A lot of the people I met in jail just thrown away as kids, raised by the state, um, got into drugs and didn't really have anything. It's, it's, it's sad. But we're going to get to all that. All right, going back chronologically to where we were in your story then, you're a beat cop now. Yep. So are you in your local area where you grew up? No, 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 no. Because no. then you would be like seeing some of your old crime partners, wouldn't you? From Yeah, no, see, I'm born and raised in Bexley Heath, which to be quite honest with you, if you, if you mention Bexley Heath to a hard-nosed East Ender, from Bethnal Green or something, they would laugh. They'd go, that's a fluffy, leafy part of Kent, you know, where the wussies come from. And 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 he wouldn't be wrong. You know, that person would not be wrong. You know, there I was with my petty shoplifting, criminal damage, nicking a can of spray paint and doing a bit of graffiti and all that kind of stuff. I would it wouldn't have made me fit to lace the boots of, of a hard nosed East End gangster. Um, or a South, or a proper South East London gangster. Um, so when I went to Peckham, it was a complete eye opener. I mean, this was proper hard nosed South East London with a considerable um, Afro Caribbean population, second generation. They were growing up. The Windrush parents had come over in the late 50s, the early 60s. They'd had their kids and now they're growing up. So they're teenagers and young men in Peckham. And they are subject of racism, police violence, being fitted up and beaten up mm. by the cops, and they're angry. Is this is around the time of the Toxteth riots? Because I remember that, that Brixton, kicked off in where I was near where I live. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, yeah. the Brixton riots, which was the first one, yeah. was in 1981. And I was there on that Friday afternoon, almost at the very start of the incident that caused it all. Well, take us through that, please. Okay, so I'm at Peckham, and... You know, I, I have no qualms about saying it, or it, although it makes me massively unpopular at times, a lot of the policing in Peckham and surrounding stations was vile, repugnant, and racist. It's a fact. I saw it. I was there. Um, there are a lot of people that are in denial about it, people from the police, and there are a lot of people that get right on their high horses because they say, well, I was in the police in the late 70s and the early 80s and I saw nothing of it. Great, good for you. I'm delighted to hear that. But I did. And my experience of it would be very different from theirs. And I've no qualms about telling it because unless an organisation like the police looks itself in the mirror, confronts its wrongdoing of the past, then it ain't going to move on as I see it. Um, so. Yeah, woe betide, you were a, a young black kid in Peckham or Brixton or some of the surrounding areas in those days and your face didn't fit. Anyway, it's 1981. I'm still in uniform, but I'm part of what is called a divisional support unit. And basically, that was a long wheelbase transit van with windows, green. You might have seen them in historical news clips and what have you, with about a dozen uniform officers on board who were all quite lively thief takers. You know, we liked working hard. We, you know, we could spot a wrong one. 
And so we would patrol areas where there'd been a lot of crime. They were later called hotspots, you know. So if there'd been an outbreak of theft from motor vehicles in one particular location, you know, that's where we'd focus, all that kind of stuff. We were a bit of a, a sort of local man's special patrol group kind of thing in those days, but, of course, without their reputation. Um, it's a Friday. We've had a really long week, and instead of this van having a dozen or so of us on it, we've dropped people off wherever they park their cars because it's Friday, Poets' Day. Piss off early tomorrow's Saturday, Poets' Day, right? So most people are in their car and going home. There's about four of us left on there, and this shout goes up Friday afternoon, urgent assistance required, route and road, Brixton. Well, we're in Camberwell. We're only a couple of minutes away. Bang, we'll have some of that, yeah? On with the two tones, whoosh, over we go. And when we get to route and road, there's a disturbance, clearly, and there's a lot of tension already building. And we get out and we just try and give a little bit of show of force because there's people already kind of forming a line and trying to encroach upon us and tempers are already frayed and it's it ain't looking too clever. We rapidly heard what we were told was the cause for this tension. In the run-up to that Friday afternoon, in Brixton, there had been what they called Operation Swamp. Now, it's 1981. Route and Road in Brixton was known as the front line, right? And there was undoubtedly, you know, plenty of cannabis dealing that went on there. And to an extent, it had become a bit of a no-go area. Well, Brixton police locally were going to try and stamp down on all of that. There was also, you know, street robberies, which were known as mugging. Um, they'd had outbreaks of that. And they had decided, the senior cops at Brixton, in their wisdom, that to get as many cops in plain clothes as they could on the streets. And if it moved, you stopped it and you searched it, right? Regardless. It was, and it was called Operation Swamp. So the clue is in the title, isn't it? Nobody's left in any doubt. And this had been going on for some time, and tensions were almost at breaking point. So when we got around and road with Operation Swamp as a backdrop, we we're already dealing with a local population who are tense, who are angry, who are frustrated. We were told that a young black man got stabbed, a cop with a view to trying to stem the bleeding, knelt over the wound on his back. But people misconstrued that as him being arrested. So hence there'd been a lot of tension. We were told undoubtedly this cop was merely trying to help the stabbing victim by stemming the bleeding. Anyway, you know, Chinese whispers, things get confused, things get embellished and lies get told. Tension's building, tension's building. A few rocks go over, bits of rubble, a few bottles, all of that. We had a couple of shields in the back of the van. We pulled them out in a sort of attempt to try and quell this minor uprising, if you will, because, you know, policing was imposed on those populations in those days. It wasn't policing by consent. It's a, it's a, it's a nonsense. Policing was imposed on these minority populations. They got what they were given. A lot out of fear, because police in those days were simply scared of a black face, as were so many people in the pop, you know, in the wider population. Um, so it, it, the tension is building. On their side, numbers are increasing. On the police side, numbers are increasing. And then some 
Einstein-like genius, I'm being sarcastic, <laughs> from Brixton Police Station, calls all of us off the streets to sit around Brixton, Nick, while they're coming up with some hurriedly cobbled together policy as to what they're going to do, because it clearly was a tinderbox. A little while later, after we've grabbed the sandwich, word comes down from on high that all these vehicles that have gathered in Brixton, you know, local units from different nicks and what have you, are to patrol endlessly in a loop, going down Routon Road, down to Tulsil almost, bung a right, back up through Brixton, another right and through Routon Road, again and again and again. We're not to get out of the vehicles, we're not to stop and search anybody, we are just to patrol endlessly in these vehicles. Well, I've got to tell you, all we were was a, a, a red rag to a very angry bull. And the, the tensions were getting even higher. We could see people walking across the street in front of us with crates of empty milk bottles disappearing down a basement, right? We knew what was going on. They were going to make petrol bombs. So what we would have done normally is get out, stop them, and either nick them or certainly, at the very least, have those crates of milk bottles off them. But no, we were to do nothing. As we patrol, you can imagine the hand gestures, can't you? And the shouting and all of that. It went both ways. Okay? And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. So um, this carried on until the early hours of the morning when we were pulled off um, and by the time we went back there on the Saturday, it just kicked off like you would not believe. I mean, Brixton burned. Where were you at that point? Uh, in the same van that we'd been in on the Friday. So what are you seeing? How are you seeing it ignite? Well, a lot, a lot I didn't see because after all our windows have been put in, and I mean all our windows, right? The window level is about sort of a metre and a bit off, off off the ground. So I'm ducking down with my head beneath there. So you're just getting bombarded. So I'm not, so not going to cop anything coming through the window. We had our truncheon straps wrapped around our wrists and our truncheons out of the window so that as we drove into a crowd, it was like boom, 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 boom. You could feel but not see that you were clearly hitting something. And I suspect they were people's heads. But, you know, like, like in a chariot or something. Yeah, yeah. Buildings were ablaze. A pub that on the Friday night, the night before, the landlady had come out, knocked on the back of our van. We'd opened the rear door and she'd slung a crate of light ales on the back of the van, right? And said, there you go, boys. Have a drink on me, <laughs> right? She was really pro old Bill. The following day, her pub was burnt to the ground. Her and her husband were tied up and doused in petrol and threatened to be set alight, <gasps> right? It was carnage there was rows and rows of cars overturned set on fire people were throwing everything they could lay their hands on at us and i actually feared for my life and i saw how many people had they been given the opportunity would have quite happily killed me did you fear for your life the whole time or was there a moment you thought shit this is too much um there, there were there were lulls. For example, there was looting going on on Brixton High Street. So sometimes units would be pulled away and told there to go and you know try and uh, deal with the looters who were raiding jewelry shops, clothes shops, anything they you know everything was getting smashed to smithereens. And at one point we stood there and like you know we just went, nah, 
nah, because it, you know, it was it was completely getting out of hand. We we were losing it. Politician Ken Livingstone, who later became the mayor of London, you know, described that weekend and said that the police got a bloody good item. Well, he wasn't wrong. Hundreds of cops were injured. Many members of the public were injured. It was remarkable that nobody died. Nothing short of miraculous. Um, Who was making the policy decisions at the top of the government? Well, Thatcher was Prime Minister. Willie Whitelaw was the Home Secretary. Willie Whitelaw. Yeah, he came down to Brixton the following day. And I think part of the reasons that government sat up and took so much notice of it, or should I say was so afraid of it, is because Brixton's only four miles from Westminster. Mm. You know, this is just down the road from the seat of Parliament. Mm. Um, yeah, Willie Whitelaw famously walked down the street uh, a day or two later and um, a very learned, described as liberal judge, Lord Scarman, was appointed to write a report on, on the events. And his report was published, you know, in book form as well. Uh, um, so, so what happened to me? Sorry, if I may just rewind. I eventually got home in the early early hours of the Sunday. Wasn't required back on the Sunday, albeit it still kicked off a bit on that day. And I was very grateful for that. Um, and on the Monday, I walked into uh, Peckham Nick and I decided that I, I was done with wearing a uniform because the cloth that I wore had become such a symbol of oppression and brutality and everything that was wrong and vile with the police in those days that I, I wanted to get out of it. And um, I'd been approached about going into plain clothes before that and had sort of just rebutted those approaches. But I thought, right, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm doing it now. I'll, I'll go into plain clothes, hopefully become a detective and, and leave my uniform days behind me. Did I bottle it? Yeah, you could say I did. You know, should I have stayed in uniform, made things better? Yeah, I should have done. But on that Monday morning, I walked into the canteen and there was a uniform sergeant proudly boasting that he'd fitted up a six foot three young black kid with loot in a lady's size five left shoe, you know? And he was boasting about it, you know? And I just went, oh, you know, it's kind of... No, I'm, I've got to get out of this uniform. Did the Brixton riots spark and inspire other riots around the country? Yeah, Toxteth particularly. I think St Paul's in Bristol. Uh, but yeah, there were other other outbursts because clearly there had been less than perfect policing and social deprivation and all of that in, in other parts of the country. Well, now, of course, we're coming up to the 40th anniversary. So I've given an interview for the BBC for. Uh, uh, a documentary film being directed by Steve McQueen, you know, the famous Academy Award winning mm. director. Um, so that'll come out in April. And what I can guarantee you is when I've given as truthful an account of policing uh, in those days to them as I have done to you, albeit even more detailed, the pile-on of abuse I will get from racist, retired old Bill will be astronomical. But They've already kicked me out of all their Facebook groups. I even got kicked out of the Metropolitan Police Ex-Detectives Association for, for what they called bringing the association into disrepute. Well, if telling the truth is bringing something into disrepute, I'm very glad to no longer be a part of it. And I think the viewers can see how truthful you are and they will appreciate that. You mentioned earlier 
about there's like big time criminals in London. And for the whole of the UK, actually, the most iconic and famous gangsters, the majority of them seem to come out of London, like the Craze, Richardsons. Who were the biggest faces back then when you were starting out? Um, the Arif family had great prominence, particularly in the old Kent Road. So, you know, Peckham policed part of the old Kent Road. Carter Street, our neighbouring Nick, did the remainder of it. Um, so they were a big influence. Um, what were they into? Uh, predominantly drugs, but um, they had a history of armed robbery as well. Because kind of like when I joined the police in the late 70s, the Cremier villains were the blaggers, the pavement artists. In other words, the armed robbers who went over the pavement armed and robbed banks and money boxes, security vans. You know, they were the creme de la creme. But, of course, that all changed fairly rapidly because by the mid-'80s, we've got the cocaine explosion on the streets of the UK and people were, you know, armed robbers were getting shot by the police, you know, on, on a fairly frequent basis. So why on earth would you stick a stocking or a balaclava over your head, take a sawn-off shotgun out onto the pavement and possibly not come back from that bit of work courtesy of an armed police officer, when you can buy yourself a few kilos of Charlie, serve that up and make yourself a very nice living, thank you very much. Which is a function of drug laws, which we're also going to get to because the government made worthless plants more valuable than gold by introducing drug laws, and it was inevitable. The economist, Richard Branson, Milton Friedman, all the senior economists say, this is all a function of drug laws. And and one of my heroes who's a peach who's appeared on your pod, Neil Woods. Oh, Neil Woods, absolutely Woodsy. brilliant. Yeah. I mean, from a law enforcement point of view, he is the granddaddy of drug law reform. Yes. And I adore the fella. And I chime entirely with every word he says. We did a four hour interview with Simon McLean out of um Scotland. And I've hooked him up with Woodsy, and he's a really good speaker. Are you familiar with Simon? Yes. Yeah, yeah. he's a great guy, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The drug law reform movement has unstoppable momentum, and we will get drug law reform eventually. We have to have. It's frankly ludicrous. Why on earth do you leave a global industry in the hands of criminals when you can legalise it, regulate it, and, and, and reduce harm dramatically? To hear that from an ex-cop, I've got goosebumps. To hear it from me is one thing, but... So, don't forget our mission statement on this channel. End the war on drugs. Take all those resources and go after the pedos, the rapists, the murderers, people harming other people. And that does not preclude drug traffickers, but to fill the private prisons, they're going to have the lowest hanging fruit, the users, low-level users. It's really sad. And at the peak of it, Hundreds of thousands of arrests in America for marijuana possession, which is absolutely ridiculous. It should be completely decriminalized. And kids should have more education and less incarceration. Because once they're criminalized, you know, a lot of them, it's hard to get out of that. Absolutely. But I'll take it a step further. When you have intergovernmental agreements, for example, when the UK government or the farmer that it employed, the pharma, you know, pharmaceutical companies it employs to process the cocaine, have a government agreement with Colombia, Bolivia, Peru, 
wherever you like in South America, to buy a fair trade product according to the rules of fair trade, which will be coca leaves, right? Buy tons and tons of coca leaves and then ship them in tankers over to the UK for processing into cocaine, right? When you have those intergovernmental agreements, we will take the farmers in Colombia out of poverty. Their children will be able to get an education because the farmers can afford it. And those farmers will not be producing those coca leaves at the end of a barrel of a gun, which is held by a criminal or a terrorist. They will be doing it courtesy of intergovernmental agreements. Now, I'm not encouraging people to take drugs, believe you me, far from it. But we all know it's a supply and demand industry and the demand is never going to go away. So why don't we, we, the government, control that industry by regulating it and reducing all the harm, saving the bloodshed? You know, as long as we beat organised crime on three fronts, price, purity, and availability, the criminals have got nowhere to go. You know, because why would you buy something that's not as good, more expensive, and you have to get it at three o'clock in the morning in some shady pub car park off a dodgy geezer with a knife down the back of his trousers when you can go to a licensed regulated outlet in the high street 24 hours a day and buy it and get advice on it, on how to take it, to do it safely and all of that. I could go on. Please do. This, confer this is confirming our mission statement because I've written books upon books about Escobar. He could get coca paste for $60 yeah. a kilo. And in, in America, when he was starting out in the late 70s, it was going, cocaine was going for $60, $70,000. So you can arrest Escobar. You can arrest the Cali cartel. You can arrest El Chapo. Someone's always going to step up to make that percentage profit. It is an iron law of economics people know this from alcohol prohibition but my belief is there's this huge wall of money that's profiting from it like for private prisons tens of billions a year in, in contracts all the parasitical corporations surrounding that and the legal system has become one of the biggest employers in the world you 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 legalize or stop all those drug arrests Look how many people you're putting out work. Yeah, but the once the industry is regulated because the drugs are decriminalised, that will become an enormous industry in itself. I know, but the lobby groups okay. for the status quo are you know, doing all these political contributions. Right, okay, so you talk about Free strikes states. law, tighten right. the law, free strikes law, put more people in prison. Yeah, but some states are breaking free of those shackles. And a, and That's the people, isn't it? At state yeah, yeah. level, Absol not the government. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, and um, you know, if if look what would happen if we do this in the UK, if we became flag bearers for it on a global scale, others would follow. Albeit, of course, some other more enlightened regimes are in front of us, like Portugal, for example. But they're in bit of a halfway house. I want to see this go the whole way. I want complete and utter decriminalization of every jug and the regulation of the industry throughout throughout all stages of the process we will raise billions and billions in tax revenue okay we will empty not empty we will dramatically reduce our prison populations we will therefore take the pressure of the criminal justice system which is creaking you know which is bursting at the seams in this country because it's so 
chronically underfunded. And it will be, and, and of course, with all that money that we raise, we will be able to go into primary schools and educate children away from drugs. My two youngest boys are 18 and 19, right? Me and my wife are foolish smokers, right? Don't smoke cigarettes, people. You know, you all know it. It's smelly, expensive, antisocial, life-shortening. Why on earth would you do it? But I'm a numb nut, so I do, right? But my kids had smoking educated out of them when they were in short trousers, and we can do exactly the same with drugs. I'm not saying we'll end up in a crime-free, drug-free nirvana because people are still going to want to do it because altering our mental state is actually a part of being a human being. It just depends how you do it. Some people go to the cinema. Well, they did. They will again to alter their human state. It's why you read a book. It's why you watch a movie. It's why you might drink alcohol. It's why you might drink coffee. It's why you might smoke crack, meth, you know, heroin, anything. Altering your mental state is an absolute function of being a human being. So the demand will always be there. And all we can do is reduce harm because people, like you said, have done drugs for millennia. And drug laws have created more harm than they were intended to stop. Because everything from knife crime in London, the majority of it, to hundreds of thousands dead in Mexico, it's people competing for that black market profits in drugs. And the media doesn't tell you that because they're just part of the problem. Well, of course they are, because Mrs. Miggins, right, who lives in a Cotswold cottage, <laughs> right, right, she reads the Daily Mail, right, okay, and she believes that drugs are a terrible thing. And how could you ever legalise them? The streets would be full of junkies robbing us all and all that kind of stuff. Bless her, right? She knows nothing about the drugs industry. What she actually should do is sit down with her grandchild right? Because as much as she thinks that drugs are not in my life, courtesy of County Lions and other inventive drug dealers, right? If I was sitting down having a cup of tea and a slice of Victoria sponge with Mrs. Miggins, which I would love to do, I could take out my mobile phone and prove to her that within half hour, I could get any bit of gear I wanted. Not that I would, because I haven't touched an illegal drug for 17 years. But it's there, it's on her doorstep. But, of course, she will vote for a politician who doesn't have a spine and won't actually stand up in the House of Commons and go, this is all nonsense. Fortunately, some politicians are coming round Finally. to a sensible way of thinking because the movement's got unstoppable momentum. But it's taking a long time. It'll get there. The brilliant people like Woodsy and Simon and all those other Steve Rolls and all those organisations, Anyone's Child, Transform Drug Policy, all these kind of people, UK Leap, they're going to they're, they're get this sorted. And thank goodness they've got the stomach for a long, long campaign. And we're going to put the links to UK Leap, which I am a member of, and also transform in the description box below this video because it's you guys out there. You know, um, before lockdown, I was in some little kebab-type place getting a falafel wrap or something, and I saw three muscular men. Uh, I, I clocked them, I thought, hmm. And um, as, as they were leaving, one of them came over to me, and he goes, hey, I, I'm um, a, a cop. And we, we watch your stuff. I'm not allowed to say it, but completely agree with what you're saying about drugs and drug laws. So there's good people in police and government 
who can make policy decisions. And we know it's coming down from the top, these bullshit laws, revenue generation. If you guys can make these changes, you're in those institutions, voice your opinions and get these changes made. But as Peter said, the momentum is there right now. You're on the winning side of this. And all the other people out there are not in those institutions. Join UK Leap. Support Woodsy. Support Simon. Transform. You can, you know, get on and, and just share this stuff on social media at the very least and just help the message get out there to more and more people. Because there is this generation of drug war dinosaurs. What did you call her? Miss Migsy. Mrs. Miggins. Mrs. Right? Miggins. She, she lives in a Cotswold cottage. <laughs> Reads reads right wing newspapers and and you know is is bless her you know and I'd love to have a cup of tea with her. She's a fictional character, obviously, but there are so many of them in real life. You know, I'd love to have a cup of tea with her and, and just explain to her the 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 nonsense that our current laws are. I've seen her in action on two occasions. I saw Mrs. Miggins chasing a um, Holland and Barrett uh, worker around the store, yelling at her about CBD oil and furthering uh, drug use. And also, um, I did a talk at a school, and uh, uh, Mrs. Miggins came up to me. She said, this is the first time we've had a ex-prisoner come in here. Um, please don't let there be any swearing. And of course, our, our girls um, don't do any drugs. And then I went to another school, and the teacher was telling me exactly where the girls at that school scored their drugs from. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> of course. But, you know, once it's legal and regulated and anybody can walk down a high street and buy it from one of my unimaginatively named drugstores, right? All that teenage mystique, that act of teenage rebellion will go out of the window, right? It will simply fade away because if that teenager goes to the drugstore drug on a Saturday night, to buy whatever bit of gear they're going to buy because they're going to a party or, or, or to a club. And standing in the queue in front of them is their granddad, right, <laughs> who's going to buy a joint which he's going to smoke while he watches Strictly. Okay, right? How cool is that? What? You're in the same shop as your granddad? It's no longer a teen an act of teenage rebellion, is it? And don't the stats from Holland bear that out? Because if your parents are in the cannabis cafes, are you going to go and sit in there and get, and get high? No, you're not. It would be the most uncool thing, wouldn't it? Absolutely. It really would be yeah. cringeworthily dreadful. And, and, and so teenagers will have to find something else to rebel against because... You know, anybody can buy drugs, kids. You're not a rebel. You're really not a rebel. Yeah. All right, so the next phase in your career chronologically was you became a detective and you policed posh Kensington. Oh, yes, I went to the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, don't you know, and worked at Kensington Police Station in the CID office. Uh, got, it, got, got exposed to a wide range of different sort of crimes, predominantly fraud. Um, there was plenty of that because there was a lot of posh people and a lot of money and, of course, criminals wanting to part them from their, their money. There was also still drugs and social deprivation, the other side of the Cromwell Road in pockets in Earl's Court and all that kind of stuff. There was huge um, gay bars in Kensington, which, again, I'd never experienced before, you know, and we'd go and have a drink in, in some of these places, and the fellas were hysterical. I mean, giants, men, you know, having grown up watching, uh, what was that, um, 
program set in that department store. Oh, I can't remember it. You know, where all the TV depictions of gay men were very, very camp. So that was all I kind of knew, you know. And suddenly we're uh, we're late turning the CID. One of the guys says, should we go and have a drink down at Colhern? And we go, yeah, all right, you know, because they're the community. They deserve policing. Of course they do, as much as anybody else. And we go there, and there was absolute giants of men in some of the most imaginative, like, get-ups you've ever seen, you know. <laughs> and they were real good fun, and they thought it was fun that the local CID were coming and having a drink with them, you know. And that kind of changed my perception of the whole male gay scene forever. And, quite, um, quite far, apparently. Peter was talking about his cross-dressing before the cameras were turned on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so uh, yeah, you know, it, it was great. It was really diverse, very, very different. Um, uh, successfully solved the murder of a sex worker. Oh, can you give, yeah. us, give us the details of that? Yeah, Christine Offord. Um, she was a sex worker. She had a, a, a female partner. Um, she catered for um, lots of people's different kind of sexual picadillos and preferences, shall we say. So there was plenty of kit on the walls and all that sort of Ooh. stuff, the like of which I'd never seen before. <laughs> Me neither. In my rampant naivety. <laughs> and um, I've got some photos. Um, and, yeah, sadly, Christine was, was, was murdered. Um, found in a bath with a severe head wound. Oh, dear. But um, cause of death was her throat had been crushed with, a, with an iron bar. What? And um, I was, so I'm a young detective with some young mates who were really energetic. Uh, a murder squad is formed. It was before the days when you had dedicated homicide teams. So in those days, if a murder happened on anybody's patch, it was the job of a senior detective to literally cobble together a team of detectives from wheresoever he could get them. We're at Kensington. Christine's body is found. And unusually, two detective inspectors were put on this inquiry, which was not a good thing because they both had their own agendas. There was a bit of a sort of a willy-waggling contest going on between them. You know what I mean? Like who was going to be top Johnny? And it, it really didn't, didn't help. Anyway, so me and a couple of my mates, well, four or five of us, we're aligned with one DI, and there's the other DI who was a lot older. And the detectives that he recruited onto his little sort of sub-team were all crusty and long in the tooth and weren't particularly dynamic. Anyway, they went off like long dogs on this harebrained theory as to who was responsible for this murder, whereas me and my colleagues decided that we would focus on the facts. And um, Christine and her partner kept some very, very colourful company. And we identified, I think it was a total of, 12 people that were all gathered together in Christine's flat not long before she must have been killed. We traced uh, and interviewed all of those people except for two. And I spent a long time with a very colourful character of a guy winning his trust, literally two or three days in an interview, supplying him with tea, cigarettes, food, winning his trust, winning his trust, before he then gave me uh, a couple of little snippets. He said, okay, there were two people, um, the two people that, that you haven't traced that weren't there, I will now tell you, because he was terrified of them, like all the others gathered around had been terrified of these two men, hence they wouldn't tell us who they were. 
and he said, I only know their, their first names and, and, and nicknames. And he said, uh, one is Bungling Bob the Burglar. He said, uh, and the other one is Psychopathic Barry. And I went, right, thank you. You know, very helpful. And I was like, you know, where are they from? Where are they from? And again, chatting to him for hours and hours and hours. And he went, I did hear a place name mentioned. He said, I heard the town of Littlehampton mentioned at one point during a conversation. So now I've really kind of got something to to, to go on. I uh, said goodbye to him for that day and, you know, got him a lift back home, went up into the CID office. I'm kind of like really excited now because these are the only two people that we've yet to identify and get in front of. Um, I rang Little Hampton CID. It's late at night. Wasn't entirely sure the phone was going to get answered, and it was, and spoke to a detective there, told him who I was. I said, look, have you got a Bob and Barry that, that you know of that you can talk about? He said, no, uh, no, no. He said, nothing's really come to mind. I said, what about bungling Bob the burglar? I said, does that ring a bell? He said, no, no, it really doesn't. So heart's sinking a little bit here, you know. And I went, um, psychopathic Barry. I said, you know, this is the murder of a sex worker, you know, and she was bound and, you know, beaten and submersed in a bath and all of that. He went, hang on. He went, hang on. He said, uh, he said I've got a bloke called Barry, I think, on bail um, over an allegation of, sexual assault on a boy and i've gone okay um can you dig the file out he said yeah hang on a minute hang on a minute i'll go and get it it's on my desk somewhere puts the phone down comes back a few minutes later he said yeah he said um yeah i've got this he said yeah barry parsons he said um uh being investigated over an allegation like i previously said i said oh great okay um can you check his associates he said, yeah, I'll pop down to the old Collator's office. Collator was the guy who used to pull on, on a card index system all the local information about criminals and businesses and all that sort of stuff. And he comes back and we said, yeah, 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 he's got an associate called Bob. Thank you very much. <laughs> right, phone to the governor. I think we've got who we need to, uh, who we need to find here. And to cut a long story short, the next day or the following day, their front doors disappeared off their hinges at the crack of dawn. They both got nicked. Further evidence was gathered, and they both went to court and were convicted of murder. What Job was the done. motive? Uh, essentially, there was a lot of, shall we say, kind of sexual deviance going on, and there was a lot of um, confused loyalty. I've got to be a bit careful because somebody was actually acquitted in connection with the crime. Um, but let's just say some people thought that they, some people couldn't handle rejection very well. How, how about if I put it like that? Yeah. How many corpses had you seen up to the point of this case? One, and I've only ever seen one. Going back to Peckham when I was a young PC, I was really brand new in the job and I was sent to deal with a fatal road traffic accident where an old lady had been tragically hit on a pedestrian crossing. You can tell how uncomplicated and, you know, policing was back in those days in certain regards that a probationer PC is dealing with a fatal road accident. Um, anyway, I got sent to the post-mortem 
Um, so I went to the mortuary and it was such a horrendous experience for me that I made it clear to any boss that I ever worked for after that, I'm never going to a mortuary or a post-mortem again. It just really, really affected me. You know, I'm not good with the sight of blood. I mean, I'm just one of them kind of wussy sort of people when it comes to that. Sorry, wussy is a dreadful, clumsy choice of word. I'm just not good with blood, and I don't like looking at dead bodies. Um, and and so whenever I was on a, a murder inquiry after that, you know, and if the governor would say, right, your exhibit's obviously going to post-mortem, I'm saying, no, governor, I can't do that. I'm sorry, but that's just... It's just not for me. You'd have to find someone else to do it. So how did you I'll, how did you steel yourself then to when you know you knew you were gonna arrive at this other corpses, the crime scene? Yeah, no, I th- I've got there after the body had been removed and all of that. Oh. So when I came on the murder squad it was like the day after the crime had happened. So yeah, that's it. I didn't I I never ever went near a dead body again. Because I just couldn't knack it. Give me street fighting, kicking doors down, working undercover, getting stabbed myself, all that kind of nonsense and lunacy but i can't i don't do blood and i don't do dead bodies so up to this point had you been stabbed yourself uh no i got stabbed when i went to scotland yard when i was that's all going next yeah had you been attacked in any other way up to this oh yeah 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 i mean uniform pc on the streets of peckham yeah i'd been in plenty of uh, plenty of scraps and dust ups and what was the closest situation there that you thought this is well i was night duty on my own walking you know, back in the good old days where you could go out on night duty, just you, you know, you, you have your radio, but off you go. And I'm walking through this estate and I see three fellas in the gloom behaving rather strangely around uh, motor vehicles. They're going, they're going like round the boot. One's going around one side, one's going around the other side, and this, that, and the other. So I kept my eye on them for a little while. I'm pretty sure they couldn't see me. I tucked myself away and I thought they were just looking for a motor that they could break into or steal anyway they behave strangely around these cars then they come walking towards me and they're three abreast at this point so I just took a deep breath stepped out in front of them and said gentlemen you know just stay there if you will I want to search you I've been seeing you behave in a manner that I think is rather suspicious so I want to search you to see what you've got on you just stay there we can all do this you know, in a civilised kind of fashion. Those words fell on deaf ears. Um, Have you got backup coming or are you just on your own? Well, at, at that point, yeah, I can't remember whether I'd called for backup beforehand or not. Um, I did, I certainly did at some stage. So anyway, they've just kept walking the walls me, walking the walls me, walking the walls me, and then it's all kind of kicked off. I've stepped back a little bit, pulled my truncheon out, and I've whacked one of them right over the Swede, right? Because they've clumped me first, Yeah. And he literally just kind of shook his head, blinked, and carried on going for me again. And I'd given him my best shot. It was like, ooh, this ain't, this really isn't going to end well. And it was yet another one of those moments when you hear the two tones going, you know, the sirens, and you go, oh, yes, please, thank you. Get they get you to the ground. As soon as you can. No, I managed to keep on my feet on that occasion, wow. bobbing and weaving. Um, you know, after I'd waxed him with, with my, my stick, my truncheon, and it had made very little difference. I knew that this really was, I, I didn't want to get any closer to him. I didn't want hands on, you know. You're just in self-preservation mode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And trying to keep them, you know, keep, keep an eyeball on them so that when the other cops get here, we can search them. And hopefully they've got something to hide 
which is why they didn't want to be stopped and searched in the first place. You know, that's what I'm hoping for, and so then they can get nicked. So wasn't their plan just to run off rather than just stay and attack you? Strange. They just decided, I, I suppose they probably thought, three against one, we can act this, maybe have a bit of sport with this, you know, cop. How long did that go on for? Seemed like an eternity, but, you know, my colleagues turned up. And bizarrely, as I seem to remember it, I don't think we found any tools on them for stealing cars or anything like <laughs> that. Oh, you know. they've assaulted you so, now, though, so they've got to go Yeah, down. no, but I'd given him away. I think we all just sort of kissed and made up. And no way! But, you know. Was... <laughs> <laughs> they just wanted a box up then. Yeah, yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was a less complicated policing world back in those days. <laughs> In many regards. <laughs> so what's your next move then after Kensington? Right, new Scotland Yard. Yeah, I wanted to be a Scotland Yard detective. You know, that was... Uh, what does that mean, a Scotland Yard detective? Well, it's got a nice ring to it, hasn't it? And it, and it means, actually, you're, you're an half-decent operator, you know, because you, you had to be pretty committed. You had to have something about you, you know, to get on a Scotland Yard squad. And at the time... Some people were trying to persuade me to go on the flying squad. You know, the Sweeney made famous by that brilliant TV series back in the day, which older listeners and viewers will remember with John Thor and Dennis Waterman. If you haven't ever seen it, it's, it's, it is, of course, dated, but it's out there on YouTube and the like. Um, Why were they so esteemed, the flying squad? Because they used to take down the armed robbers, you see. Uh... So you had the highest echelon criminals being the blackers and then the tastiest squad being the flying squad that took them down. Yeah. So that was the, the actual thing. But it's the mid-80s, and as I've spoken about the explosion of coke on the streets, I was seeing that because a lot of people in Kensington had to dote to pay for it. You know, it hadn't become the drug that it is today, you know, or, or became in just a few short years. You know, back in those days, early 80s, the people who took Charlie were some within the entertainment industry, some who were sort of uh, part of the uh, aristocracy, shall we say, you know, musicians and the like. You, plumbers, carpenters, sparks, van drivers and all that kind of stuff came to the cocaine, you know, a few short years later, by which time a lot of it had been trodden on. So the quality of gear they were getting wasn't the kind of gear that people were banging on in Kensington in, in the early, mid-1980s. But anyway, so I got to the yard I had quite a bit of experience from drugs jobs, you know, both at Peckham and at Kensington. And, of course, I'm born and raised in Bexley Heath, you know, and I didn't associate with old Bill when I was off duty, very rarely. You know, my mates from my old days, you know, I were my mates. So let's just say I was no stranger to drugs. You know, I knew my way around um, a, a bit of gear because my mates weren't in the job. So when I went up to the yard in the mid-80s, very happy to be there. Scotland Yard detective, bit of kudos. You know, the name Scotland Yard is known around the world in law enforcement uh, terms. I'm 25, fit, fearless, and job pissed, as they said. You know, just drunk on the job, just wanted to work, 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 work. I go up there, I get a very, very swift insight into how the established undercover cops are doing it. And I thought, I can do better than that, I reckon. So when the first opportunity came, anybody, you know, an undercover job's come in, anybody want to have a go? My arms shot up like a five-year-old in primary school who knows the answer to the teacher's question, you know what I mean? Yeah, me, 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 me. And uh, so began a 10-year career of working undercover telling lies. What was your first assignment, and did you feel that you were a natural at it, or were you feeling your way and making mistakes? 
well, petty crime background, knowing drugs as I did, both within and outside of the job, I felt I was pretty, you know, pretty well equipped for it. The only time I was ever popular at school was when the annual play came round and I'd get a decent role in that every year because I used to, like, get on the stage and show off. Right. Um, so, you know, a bit of acting's in me, quite a bit of knowledge. I was thinking that the personality I would adopt undercover wasn't a million miles from who I actually am, you know, South London, all that that kind of, you know, background. Um, and I could talk about a lot of different things and 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 I saw that some of the uh the operatives doing it I felt were a bit stuck in their ways. They'd wear a suit, they'd want to meet in a posh hotel bar, they'd be dripping in jewellery that they've borrowed from a friendly local jeweller in Hatton Garden. And when the bad guys said, Come on, let's go from this bar, let's go somewhere else for a meeting to discuss the trade and all of that invariably those undercover cops would go no because their bosses would say you don't move from there we can't keep you safe well i'm watching all of this going on i'm thinking this is really dated i'm also getting word from the street if you will that people involved in the drugs industry are going if you meet a bloke in a suit in a hotel bar and he won't leave there he's an undercover cop <laughs> and i'm feeding this back to my bosses and i'm going look you know, we need to adapt and move with the times here now. And if I'm going and I negotiate with a crook, does it really matter where I go for that negotiations? I've not got 100 grand in a holdall with me. I'm just going to have a chat about the business and how we're going to get this trade done. You know, once I've convinced him that I'm bona fide and he likes me and he wants to graft with me. And fortunately, thanks to some brilliant bosses at the yard who had balls of steel and backed me, suddenly we had what I called the roving plot. So we'd go from this location and that location, and I'd walk into their club, their bar, their territory, their turf, wherever they nominated, because why not? You know, I'm only going there to discuss a trade. Completely different kettle of fish if I've got 30, 40, 100, 300 grand that has got to come onto the plot, then that's very different, but we'll negotiate that when we get to that stage. You know, and, and, and they backed me and we kind of revolutionised it. Can you remember your first assignment? Yeah, undercover, yeah. Um, and a mate of mine, funnily enough, was still working at Kensington. Um, and he'd nicked a geezer for a bit of drugs out there and this bloke wanted to roll over. Um, big time, and he became a very prolific informant of mine. So, um, yeah, yeah. The first one was heroin, you know, and then it was cocaine, and then it was cannabis by the lorry load, the boat load. Um, so the very first um, one, then, what did you have to wear that day, and who did you have to meet, and what did you say? Well, my uh, as one of my bosses once described in my annual report, I was an imaginative dresser. <laughs> Right, so you know, I've, I've always liked a, you know, a shirt less ordinary, shall we say, um, and and I grew a ponytail um, when I was up there at the yard. You know, it was a bit, bit, bit more of a thing in those days than than it is now, and you know, we weren't given a big budget to go and buy Gucci, Fiorucci, and all that kind of stuff. Miami Vice, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I kind of dressed like that on a summer's day anyway. Um, and of course, now I had the incentive of working undercover. 
why not buy that white linen jacket with a Hawaiian shirt underneath? You know, why not? Why not? If it works, it works. And it did. Um, and so, you know, you, you have to be utterly convincing. I was. I negotiated with them. Who? They, they brought the parcel on the plot. Oh, countless villains, of course. Well, just, just take, take us into the first one. Oh, the, the, yeah, yeah. Walk us through one. it. Walk us through it. What right. happened? Okay. So it was a parcel, and I think it was about a kilo of Coke. We we couldn't really work undercover for You're selling it or buying it? I'm buying it. You're yeah, buying yeah, a yeah, kilo yeah, of yeah, Coke yeah. from a yeah. legitimate yeah, yeah, seller. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Well, you might call him legitimate. <laughs> In those days, it was like, you know, yeah, he's bona fide drug dealer. But, uh, yeah. And and it was, I think, back in the day we were paying 30s, 35s. I was always beating people down on price. You know, 35,000 I mean? pounds for, for a kilo. kilo. Yeah. So whatever they asked for, first 40, times 40,000 know? something dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, would, I would never accept their, you know, whatever they spoke about. You know, first up, I bought a sample. I remember buying a sample. Now, back in those days, um, you had to get authority to buy a sample beforehand. Although sometimes, you know, if you're having a deal with a bloke and he just goes, right, there's a gram and he lays it on you, you know, you can't actually say, well, I don't have the authority to take that at the moment. <laughs> you know, and when I say take it, I mean stick it in my pocket. You know, I'd open it up, have a smell, have a look, chop it, have a little look, see how it, you know how it all works, if it was okay, if it was proper gear. Because so often you can tell just by looking at it, don't you? You know, you don't necessarily, you know, have to do a, a marquee reagent test on it or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, or shovel it up your bugle either. You can tell just by the smell and the look and how you rack a line of it up and, and all of that, if you know your gear. And, of course, over the years I did, you know. I knew my Peruvian flake, you know, from my Colombian, you know, and, and could tell all the, the differences. So, yeah, bought a sample. I think I paid 50 quid for the sample. He wanted 60. I paid him 50. Took that back to the lab. Uh, eventually, the lab, you see, back in those days, they go, oh, well, if you want a purity banding test on it, that might take a few days. I go, what? All I've got to do is get a bit of bicarb out and a microwave, and I'll give you an, I'll give you an accurate reading of it in about five minutes and you're telling me it's going to take five days for you getting me a banding which will say it's between 75 and 95 you know this is back in the day this is how ancient it all was in those days that's what i'm fighting against so anyway yeah long story short we negotiated they bought the gear on the plot i legged it they got captured boom job done all right, slow down, slow down. We don't like long short stories short on this. No, but we, like, we like long stories there's long. There's hundreds of them, much so, better undercover so jobs you, than, the, than the first so, one. Oh, you got better ones to, oh, to detail. I've got, okay, how long okay. have you got? You know, <laughs> I mean, literally, I did this for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was, All right, well, take, take us through then what you think is your most interesting undercover story. Well, it's the one that ended my career. Oh, dear. Essentially, yeah. I... Um, I and a guy from the customs, good undercover operator, as I thought back in the day, um, we were designated to negotiate with a bunch of very well-connected criminals. And when I say from well, the UK, when I say well, no, um, when I say well-connected, let's just say we were going to pay them hundreds of thousands of pounds in cash. They were willing to accept 
accept arms instead of cash as payment. Okay, so they are properly connected to terrorism, right? Properly connected. Are these London people? No, no. So we have lots of negotiations with them, me and the guy from the customs. And eventually it gets to the point whereby it's the day of when this operation is going to come to fruition. Um, they are going to deliver what was then, and this will show you how the industry grows and morphs, then they were going to deliver to me the biggest landside seizure of heroin ever in the UK, right? Now, if there's current cops, you know, working in law enforcement and, and drugs jobs these days, they will laugh when they hear the quantity of drugs that was then the largest landside landside seizure. So not those that are seized at ports, right? Because obviously their importations, they would be bigger, but actually seized within the mainland was 15 kilos of heroin. This was a job kind of like a very, very big job back in the day. And I can hear cops laughing as I just mentioned 15 kilos because, of course, it's all dwarfed now. Um, so that is delivered by a bloke to me in a hotel room at Gatwick Airport. I spend hours that afternoon with him in this hotel room weighing and testing every parcel. They come in half kilo bags, so I've got 30 bags to weigh and test. And when I say test, I take a little, take a Stanley knife and take a, make a little cut in the bag, take a little bit of gear out, stick it on some foil, and then burn it, right? Now, very unsip, un, unsophisticated, but I knew my gear so well. I knew how it smelt. I knew how it burnt. Because if it leaves a lot of scarring on the foil, you know there's a lot of sugars in there and a lot of cutting agents. If it burns, it smells right, it burns right, and there's next to diddly squat left on the foil, you know you've got cremo gear, right? But I've got to check, because I'm looking like the pro and I'm playing the pro, I check all 30 half kilo bags, parcels, right? Took me hours. The guy you're with, what's hours. he look like? He's sitting there, he's a little fella. He's a bit jumpy and he's all, you know, he, he kind of sort of altered his moods during the afternoon, you know, very chirpy because he knows he's in for a very big earner out of this, you know, a very big earner. He's chirpy. Then he's getting a bit fractious and then, you know, so on a couple of occasions I'd send him out of the room, you know, go and get a drink or, you know, that kind of stuff. Who but, do you suspect owns the drugs at this point? Is it like the Turkish oh, we know, Mafia we or know, something? We know, we know the, the, the team behind it, bearing in mind I've just got my undercover role, the investigating team behind it, okay, have established all the links they need, you know, as to, to, to where it's come from. Going back and, to Afghanistan and all, or all, all that kind of yeah. stuff. But that's their bag, not mine. See, I don't need to know that when I'm working undercover. Because if I know all of that stuff, I might trip myself up when I'm in conversations with those people. Other undercover cops wanted to know the ins and outs of a duck's rear end, but I didn't. You know, that was like, you do your job and I'll do my job. I'm playing the gangster. I'll go and be the gangster and we'll sort this parcel out. So there I am. 30 of these literally took hours. And at the end of doing it, and I've taped up, you know, the little holes that I've made on all of them, bagged them all back up again, all done and done. We've tucked it away. I've got a banging headache, right? I mean, I really have got an headache because, you know, 30 times I've burnt heroin, you know, and some of it has undoubtedly, like, you know, gone up my hooter 
um, in my head. I'm not high in any way. I've just got a headache. I've kind of, you know, it's it's pretty tense. You know, it's been a tense day. You know, very early start. Now we get, and, and, and I kind of know what's coming next. So me and him, we're all done and dusted. Now it's time. Uh, so we put the phone calls in, yeah, so that the money can be exchanged at the other end. Yeah. Where's the other end? Oh, there was London, basically. I think my colleague had got a security deposit box with hundreds of thousands of pounds in it. Clearly, because I mean, how do you get authority to have hundreds of thousands of pounds? Is that easy? Yeah, well, it it got easier because we did it more frequently. We and we were, if if I say so, me and my colleagues were comparatively speaking, astonishingly successful, right? But, so you've got all the bosses thinking we're winning the war on drugs, right? But basically what they haven't got is a handle on the scale of the problem, right? We're only seizing lots of drugs because there's lots of drugs out there. It's a tidal wave. And it's the same now. You know, you see seizures of 1,500 kilos of cocaine and bosses laying it out on a desk and having it all photographed and aren't we brilliant and all of that. Well, don't you realise while you've been stood showing this off to the media, another 1,500 kilos has just landed or sailed in or been distributed, you know, and so the nonsense carries on. But So you guys get on the phone so, yeah, and say, so, switch the money. Yeah, no, well, we, we, we had coded phrases to use and all yeah. that sort of stuff and blah, 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 blah. So me and him are going to go down to the hotel bar and have a celebratory drink. That's what he thinks, right? I knew that was never going to happen. Are all your people right? in there already? Oh, we've got people. We've got we've got people dressed up in hotel livery as chambermaids, you know, room service, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. The lot. I mean, this, but this was a first division crew we're operating against. In you know, we had no idea who was going to turn up. So, you know, all the all the firearms branch are out, and they're all hidden here, there, and everywhere, and have been for hours and hours and hours because, you know, there was, this was a proper firm we were up against. So me and him come out and it's all like, you know, hand around each other's shoulders. We're going to go down to the bar, have a drink because this is going to be the start of a really lucrative and fruitful relationship that we've got. Whippity dippity doodah. Press the button for the, for the lift and the next thing bang he and i are slammed to the ground by armed police of course right hands behind the back cuffed up and dragged off him in one direction in one lift me me in another right and i've got to tell you while i'm at it here every time i used to do a briefing with the armed police are you you know i would come into the briefing towards the end of it so they would get sight of me and know what I was looked like and what I was wearing and all that sort of stuff. And I would say to them, please, right, I know I don't look like it because I've got a ponytail halfway down my back, right, and I'm dressed like Don Johnson, right? I'd go, please, <laughs> please, I am on your side, right? Okay. Easy on me. So I know you want to make it look authentic, right? But... If you've got the other person banged up and they're on the ground, you know, you can just cut me a bit of slack, can't you? I said, because I do bruise and I do sue, right? Okay. And it always fell on deaf ears. 
always. They would frigging crunch me into the pavement, the carpet, whatever it was. You know, it was like I was a proper bona fide bad guy. And I'd end up with aching wrists for days. But anyway, this was no exception, right? So bang, I've hit the deck, cuffed up, dragged off unceremoniously. Um, and a couple, two or three days later, there's been simultaneous arrests, you know, at the money exchange and other people that were part of the conspiracy. And they're all in a dock of a court together. And they go, well, where's where's that cocky South London bloke with a ponytail? Where's he then? And of course, when they get remanded and they have a lot of time to think about things, they quite rightly figured out that I must have been an undercover cop. So they then worked on the theory that if they killed me, they would kill the evidence. And to an extent, they were kind of right to a certain degree because there'd been a lot of evidence in the build-up to the, the deal going down. Um, so they hatched a plot to murder me, which was discovered by the FBI on a phone tap that they had in a bar in Boston, Massachusetts. What? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The feds Is this cartel-level stuff then? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It is, yeah, yeah. So the FBI picked that plot up and they tell uh, the Met in London, you know, who, who were part of the, the investigation, who don't actually tell me, by the way, but that's that's another story. And, and in itself, you know, all they were looking for was a bloke with a ponytail. You know, so they, they weren't actually going to kind of find me. Then what happened, because this this drugs operation had involved the Garda Shikana, the police in Ireland, right, Scotland Yard, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency in America, the FBI in America, and other law enforcement agencies around the world, there was a lot of, um, shall we say, competition for kudos mm. going on amongst the organisations, right? Of which I never used to get involved because I'm too busy working undercover, but, you know, why do these people do this? So the Deputy Commissioner of the Met was going into a meeting with the Customs. I think I missed the Customs off my previous list, what was then Customs and Excise. Um, and he wanted a briefing note for this meeting. So one of the detectives on the investigating team drew up this six-page report, of which I've still got a copy, detailing exactly what had gone on in the operation. And in this report, he should have referred to me by my undercover number as allocated by the unit at Scotland Yard. But for some unknown reason, he didn't, and he put my full name in there, Detective Constable Peter Blexley. Right, with the very unusual spelling of my name, B-L-E-K-S-L-E-Y. Right? Not only did he put it in there once, of course, because I feature heavily in this report, my name in bold is in there four, five, six times in this report. Right? Mistake number one. Mistake number two, that document is printed off and taken out of a police building. Right? Number three, in a suitcase, which he puts in the back of an unmarked police car. Number four, with said briefcase in back a car, in unmarked police car, when he goes home, what does he do? Like you do, he goes shopping. As you do. And we all know what happens next, don't we? Loses it. The car gets broken into. 
and that report gets stolen. Now there's a proper scream up, right? A couple of days later, I'm driving home. Mobile phone rings. Don't go home. Oh, right. Anybody going to tell me why? No. Move into a hotel. Use one of your false identities and be here nine o'clock tomorrow morning. Get your girlfriend to go to the flat. Don't you ever go anywhere near that flat and pack an overnight bag for you. Anybody going to tell me what this is about, please? No. Just be here tomorrow morning. Right. So we uh, go go to the hotel. I get stuck into the mini bar in that room that night because my head's thinking, you know, what's going on here? What is all this about? I didn't get to the yard at nine o'clock the following morning. Of course I didn't. I'm a detective. I got there at eight because a mate of mine had said, I'll meet you. You need to know some stuff. And he pulled out of his pocket a copy of the report I've just been telling you about. He said, have you seen this? I said, no. He said, right, stick that copy in your pocket because you're going to need it. He said, and this copy, you read and hand back to me. I sat in, he locked me in this little side office, literally just me, a desk and a chair in this report, and I could not believe what I was reading. You know, that I was clearly now, with this report being stolen, I was in very real danger. By the end of that day, the bosses at the yard had decided that I had to enter the witness protection program. So I had to aban abandon my flat, abandon my name and basically abandon my life as I knew it and move into this hideout. Um, my girlfriend was given the option to, you know, come with me or not. She decided that she would. Um, they didn't give her a different name because she lived with me in my flat and didn't have any mail coming to my flat. So when they looked at it all, there was actually no linkage between her and my flat. So even if they had identified me, they wouldn't have identified her. What about your parents? Yeah, well, my mum wasn't best pleased, but I've always tried to protect my mum from the work that I did. You know, there was an occasion when I got stabbed in the neck and I knew it was going to hit the media. So I rang my mum and said, look, if you see some, something about a cop being stabbed, it's me, but trust me, I'm fine. You know, another occasion I found a wanted fugitive um, and who pointed a shotgun right under my nose. And that started a siege, which lasted for a couple of days. And I rang my mum and said, mum, you're going to hear about a siege on the TV, right? Yes, it was me, but I'm fine. You know, so I always try to protect my mum. And, you know, she knew that I wasn't a beat Bobby because of the ponytail and all that kind of stuff, but I protected her. So I protected her as best I could from what happened to me. I said, look, I've had to move out, you know, but I've got this place and it'll be fine. And, I'll come and see you uh, and, you know, I just won't be ringing you very often and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, likewise with my son, who then was about six or seven. But in the end, it all just became completely unmanageable. Anyway, so I get parachuted into this hideout, having abandoned life as I knew it. Um, and, of course, every day I am filling my head with conspiracy theories as to how this has come to be. You know, how did that report get written, stolen, in a police car, blah, 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 blah. You know, constant fear of the assassin's bullet. And not only was I living in, well, this would be a typical day. I come down in the morning, there's my mail on the doormat, right? Which is a constant reminder of the name that I'm living in, in witness protection, right? So that's identity one for the day. Then I get in the car, having checked underneath it to make sure that nobody's put a device there to blow it to smithereens 
right? Then I get in the car and drive to work. So for that hour or so, I can put on whatever radio station I want and I can be me. I can be Peter Blexley having a little shuffle in my seat as I'm driving to work. Best hour of the day, right? Bar none. I then get to work because I still had to work, believe it or not, and the police still wanted their pound of flesh out of me. I walk up the stairs, go into the office, and the governor goes, Blex, got another undercover job coming today, mate. One for you. So by 11 o'clock in the morning, I've been three different people. <laughs> right? You know, and I'm living in witness protection program, and nobody actually thought that this is all going to go horribly wrong at some point. Needless to say, it did. What happened? I did all that nonsense for two years, and then I had a major catastrophic mental health breakdown. <sighs> Absolutely, you know, catastrophic. Any warning signs are just out the blue. Yeah, yeah. I was I was turning into a monster, but you know, I was a professional liar for a living, so I was good at pulling the wool over people's eyes. Um I I could disguise things, but eventually I nearly killed a mate of mine in a pub and I knew that, you know, enough was enough. How did that come about, nearly killing him? Oh, it was just a bit of tittle tattle in the pub, you know, I'm really stressed. I've kind of, I've, I've gone beyond caring now. So I've gone back to my old haunts, to my old pub, right? You know, sod that witness protection malark, malarkey. And um, I've heard that he's been gossiping about me, about a girl. So I just walked straight up to him. And I'm not a man of violence, you know. I'm a former boxer and all of that. And I had to do roughy tufty street fighting when I was in the in the job, in, in the police. But I'm not, I'm not a man of violence at all. Um and I've just, he's sitting on a bar stool in the pub. I've walked straight up to him, not said a word, clumped him, hit him, knocked him on the floor, picked up the bar stool, and I am bringing it down from on high now, and I am going to smash his head into pulp, right? And I'm bringing it down over his head, and as I bring it down, somebody shouted, Blacks! And that kind of connected me with the person I was, as opposed to the monster that I was in that moment. And I stopped literally with it about a foot or two away from his head. And I just put it to the side, dropped it, walked over to a chair, sat down and said, somebody, please, 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 please help me. And within a couple of hours, I was in a lock-in psychiatric ward. So the career turned you into a monster. Is that what you're saying? The circumstances did. You know, I'm not entirely blameless in all of this. You know, I drank too much in witness protection. You know, I, I, I did, and I and I smoked too much. Well, you never get tempted to get under drugs if you're around them so much. Yeah, well, I was around drugs all the time. When I, I was around drugs all the time. Remember, I'm at the peak of my powers as an undercover cop, buying millions and millions of pounds worth of drugs. So, you know, I, I could easily have done that. But, I mean, witness protection and alcohol is my poison. Funnily enough... You're self-medicating. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, catastrophically so. Funnily enough, my dalliance with drugs came after I left the cops and I yearned for that high and I became far too familiar with cocaine than I should have done. You know, um, but I managed to sack all that off because fortunately, you know, the important people in my life said, if you don't stop that nonsense, um, you won't have the people that you love around you anymore. A lot of people in jail have been in the military and they've come back from wars with PTSD and they've not been given any help. They get on street drugs to 
self-medicate and end up in prison through petty crime. I say that more than half of my friends inside were ex-military. What was the case for you? You've given all these years of your life, you've risked your life over and over. Do they now step up and give you all the help in the world to get through this? It's the mid-1980s. Mental health awareness is nothing like what it is now. Uh, in fact, and I still get told stories of this, senior senior officers um, thought that I was putting it on. Um, one very senior-ranking police officer came down and had a meeting with my mum and told my mum that I needed a kick up the arse. Uh, okay, and I'm having a catastrophic mental health breakdown. Um, yeah, such was the ignorance back in those days. Um, you know, I, I, I don't live my life looking back over it and ripping myself asunder anymore. I live my life looking forwards because I know when you live your life looking over your shoulder, you know, just how damaging that can be. Um, it, it happened. I'm, I'm very fortunate you know, to have a loving family and a, and a good network, tight and small network of friends that, that have helped. You know, family, friends, um, and the fact that I, I still possess uh, uh, a strong resolve within, which is... Well, how long did that take? And medication. To go from catastrophic meltdown, that must have took a lot of time to get back to normal. Oh, it did. I mean, I got back to work, I think, eventually you know, maybe nine months, a year later, um, my life really in, in you know, in, in pretty chaotic situation. Um, and it was fine. I went back, obviously I couldn't work undercover, but I could do surveillance and I got put on an intelligence unit, which was a lot of office-based work, which wasn't great, but, you know, I was working, I was earning and, and, and that was fine. Uh, but then they posted me back to a regular police station and my reputation preceded me. There was an enormous amount of stigma and I found myself getting unwell again. And I literally drove out of that police station one day with my hands so tight on the steering wheel mm. that I could see the whites of my knuckles mm. and I was building up with tension. And I drove home and, and said to my wife, that's it, I'm not going back because I'm, I'm gonna get ill again. I'm gonna get really ill again. Went to the doctor, got signed off, and eventually got medically retired. So at the age of 39, 40, there I am on the scrap heap of life. No education to fall back on, no trade, no craft, no vocation, no calling. And I'm thinking, like, what the heck is going to happen now? And that was around the turn of the millennium. Yeah. What's the story of you getting stabbed in the neck? <laughs> right. Um, a new detective inspector came to one of the teams on our squad. And there was an undercover job running. And one of the bosses said to me, go out with this team. It's their job. Uh, it's an undercover job. But go out and just keep an eye on the DI because he's a bit new. You know, he could do his, you know, he might need your experience and uh, take a couple of the others with you. I said, yeah, yeah, of course, you know. Uh, went out there. The undercover job went okay. The gear got delivered to this supermarket car park. We all pounced. Nick the bad guys. The undercover cops ran off, I think. Um, but what had happened was we'd seen the bad guy to in and fro in from a particular flat, which we'd identified. We knew the door. We knew the number. We could see it. So the minute the, the arrest went down in the car park and the drugs got seized and he got nicked, I've gone to this new detective inspector and I've gone, we've got to hit that address. 
We've got to hit it now. Right? And of course, he dillied and he dallied, didn't he? And he ummed and he ahed. And he said, well, let me just sort this out. Blah, 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 blah. Unfortunately, we didn't go to that address for about 20 minutes. Now, of course, what is happening in that address? Somebody in there is wondering, where's my associate? Where's my friend? Where's my colleague? Why hasn't he come back to the flat with a big bag of money? You know, what's gone wrong? So when I went up to that door, um, you know, trying to see if we could take it off our hinges and get in there and be proactive and all that sort of stuff, um, it flew open and I was greeted by a man with a knife in his hand who then plunged it in my neck. What did he look like? Well, he wasn't the biggest bloke in the world, but he was clearly, from the fleeting glimpse that I got of him, he was stressed and concerned and worried, you know. Whereas if we'd gone there 20 minutes earlier, the minute that it had gone down, you know, we might have had him off guard a little bit. Anyway. Did you so, see the weapon? Yeah, well, it was, first of all, strange how your mind works in those moments. I thought I'd been hit with a light bulb. Right? I don't know why, and I've never been able to rationalise that, but I thought he hit me with a light bulb. I saw something in his hand, just fleetingly, and then I get this blow to the neck, right? So his momentum is going forward. I'm young and fit and fearless still in those days. So I've grabbed him and pinned him to a set of railings on these external stairs where I've grabbed him. And as I've got my hand on his wrist, I can see that he's now holding a knife and I can see that that knife is covered in blood, which is, of course, mine. <gasps> so that wasn't a great moment. Um, colleagues come and, you know, rip him from my grasp. Um, the, you know, one says, you better cover that, you know. So I've got a scarf, cover the wound. Then somebody comes What's and helps me. What's the blood leak is like? I, I couldn't really see because it's there. Can you see the scar's still there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So... So I'm there. I, I really can't see. Um, I am then walked down the stairs and told to sit down by a great colleague of mine. She was a fabulous detective. She sat me down. Um, you know, the ambulance is called and all of that. But it's literally, hold that there. You know, do not move. So I'm doing that. Any um, pain yet? Not that I can recall. I don't, I, I don't really recall all these years later. Uh, remember hearing the the sirens of the ambulance coming, which was great. Um, I put in the back of there. Some people were. The worst thing was I could see people around me were really concerned, and I think that's probably because they knew I'd been stabbed in the neck, but nobody really knew the extent of it. But clearly, you know. The, the, anyway, we get to the hospital. I'm rushing into A and E, and this wonderful female doctor um, takes the you know the dressing off that the paramedics have put on and what have you takes one look at it. She goes, flesh wound, no problem. Sutures. And that was it. You know, she was real like wow. matter of fact. Yeah. And she stitched me up, sent me on my way. And, uh, and, and and that was that. Any other close shaves? Yeah. Oh, crikey. The times I've stared down the barrel of a gun when I mentioned briefly earlier that when Shotgun. this was when I was at Kensington, you know, and I found this guy called James Alexander Bakery. He was um, Scotland's most wanted man. He'd been convicted of murder. He'd blasted a man to death with a shotgun and virtually cut him in half during a robbery of a pub. Bakery had been convicted of that, sentenced to life, 
sentenced to Sultan, which was like the high security jail, and he'd escaped. He'd, he'd carried out a miraculous escape. He broke his own arm to have a plaster cast put on, um, and then he used the plaster cast to conceal things and cut it off and all sorts of stuff. Wow. And scaled roofs and case. fences and all of that, and it was quite a, a tale in itself, apparently. Uh, but he'd been on the run for a number of months, and I'm in the office at Kensington, you know, usual sort of thing, you know, busy, proactive, and I hear a colleague of mine on the phone, and I thought, this is a conversation I need to listen to. The guy was a bit less experienced than me. So I just thought I'd, you know, cock an ear in that direction. And when he came off the phone, got the full rundown. So Bagri had a very close best friend, and the Scottish police had searched his flat. They ripped it asunder. Floorboards, walls, the lot. And all they had found that was of any kind of interest to them was a London telephone number on a scrap of paper. And so what they'd done is they'd had a subscriber check done on that telephone number to see what address it came to. And then they'd rung that detective that I'd overheard the call saying, can you check out this address? So I'm really keen. And, and, and this, this colleague of mine is saying, I think because it was a house, big house divided up into a number of flats. And he said, um, I think I'll ring the landlord and find out who's living in, you know, living in the flat. I said, don't do that. Whatever you do, do not do that. Right. We can't trust anyone here. Right. So just don't do that. Anyway, I later found out that he went against my advice. And that very nearly cost me my life, mm. right? You know, when you're in law enforcement, you know, there are times you can trust people and there are other times you manifestly cannot. So the following morning, there's two of us that are armed, me and a detective sergeant. We've booked our guns out from the station sergeant's safe. Um, <laughs> this is how long ago it is. They're old Smith & Wesson revolvers, right? None of your Glocks like of these days, right? A revolver. Um, so two of us have got, got guns. We go to this building, through the communal door, up to the flat where we think Bagri may have lived. I kick the door in, steam in. It's a twin-bedded room, like a bedsit. One of the beds is empty. One of them is occupied. I shout at the person that's lying in the bed, give him the instructions to get out. Whilst I'm pointing my gun at his chest, he quite meekly uh, obeys, gets out of bed. We question him, uh, and no, 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 nobody of the name of Bagri there. No, 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 no. No, my mate, he's a builder, um, lovely bloke, really lovely bloke. He goes out for a few beers and doesn't come home. That happens quite often because he might pull a bird or something, you know, blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no can't help you. Right, okay. Bearing in mind that I was loath to trust anyone in those days, I then have a little look, and on a windowsill above a fireplace, I see a photograph. Now, we've got a photograph of Bagri from when he was arrested and convicted, but I then look at this photograph surreptitiously, right? So the bloke who, who you know, we've got out of bed can't see. And I can't, mm, is it him? Is it him? 
I don't know. I don't know. I really didn't. So I slid it into my pocket because this is pre-internet age. What I'm going to do is take that, get that photograph sent down to Heathrow Airport and flown up to Scotland on the first flight so Scottish police can look at it and go, yes, that's him or not. So at least then we've got bit of a, you know, we're a bit more up to speed and we know whether the guy did live here. So photograph in pocket. We come out, leave that bloke on his own and we're standing on the road. And of course, my colleagues are having the most important conversation of the day, which is where do we go and get breakfast, right? So um, my other, the other, my colleague, the sergeant with the other gun, he's long gone off to get his full English fry-up breakfast. Um, and me being the nosy detective that I am, you know, it's all this builder, builder, builder. And I'm looking up and down the road and I see what looks like a builder's van. So I go over to the front, have a look at it. There was tax discs in those days on cars. Check all that. You know, I didn't check the tyres, right? That's what traffic cops do. I'm not in traffic, right? And I, and I can see there's a partition between the front of the van and the back part. So I can't really see into the back. I go round the back, peer in through, through two windows in the rear doors, but it's dark. I can't really see anything. I stick my hand on the door handle. Lo and behold, it moves. Bingo. It's open, right? So I open the door, dive in. I'm virtually, you know, almost got my feet off the ground and got in. And as my head goes in and the, my upper part of my body is now well inside this van, a head pops up, boom, from beneath a blanket, right? Okay, it takes me by surprise, as you can probably imagine. And this is where the training kicks in. I went, good morning, I'm an armed police officer. That whole thing, when you're carrying a gun, when you're carrying a gun, when you're carrying a gun, tell people you're an armed police officer. Didn't have the gun in my hand, it's in my holster. So now I'm fumbling, trying to get it out of my holster because I realise that, you know, pretty soon this ain't exactly right. And as I'm fumbling in, in my shoulder holster, he pulls up a double-barreled up and over sawn off shotgun and points it right under my nose. Holy shit. This convicted murderer, James Alexander Bagery. Well, in the finest traditions of the Metropolitan Police, I legged it. <laughs> I, I ran like a long dog, right? Usain, eat your heart out, son. I'd have given you a run for your money that morning. I have bolted like whoosh. All the time shouting, pardon the language, he's got a fucking gun, <laughs> right? To my colleagues who were still talking about breakfast on the other pavement, right? They scarper, they realise that I'm deadly serious. I dive down beneath the car for cover, about five cars in front of the van. But of course, I've run towards the front of the van as, a, as opposed to the other direction because I didn't want to give him the opportunity to shoot me in the back. But now, of course, I've got the added problem that I can only see him partially through the partition window from front of the back of the van. I've got an escape murderer with a with a double-barreled sawn-off shotgun. It's early hours of the morning. People have been woken by the noise. People are also leaving to go to work. It's a catastrophic situation, and it's freezing cold, and I'm lying there with the one gun. So I'm shouting at him, complete lies, 
you are surrounded by armed police. You are surrounded by armed police. No, it's not. One's having frigging egg and bacon as we're speaking, and I'm lying in the gutter trying to keep my hands warm by switching gun from one hand to the other. Fortunately, you must have believed me because he stayed put. Wow. He stayed put, what and a that story, was man. and that was really so. An hour later or so, the firearms branch turn up and relieve me. They surround it all. There's a siege that lasts some 36 hours. And in the end, he turned the shotgun on himself and blew his brains out. Fuck. Oh, he didn't want to go back to prison. No. For him to be that clever to have the cast and then to leave phone numbers lying around and leave his photo lying around. Doesn't make sense, does it? Yeah. You know, but there you go. So how long was your adrenaline spiked that day? Oh, yeah, that was that was quite quite a day that was and um yeah and of course it was a big story you know it was a front page story because the siege caused traffic chaos in that part of west london for a couple of days when um, you when you go home after something like that how do you shake it off you go via the pub <laughs> right that's what we did back in the day <laughs> That's what we did. Go and have a drink with your colleagues, you know, your mates, and sort of find the humour in it and, you know, laugh it off, go home. Gallows humour. Get to bed and come back and do it all again the following day. Wow. What a bloody story, man. Yeah. All right. So after you got out then, um, your life and career unravel after witness protection. Then you bounce back with the publication of The Gangbuster. So what was that about? Yeah, so um, there I am on the scrap heap of life at the age of 40. And um, I felt a bit hard done by, obviously, with how my career had ended and how I'd been treated. And I thought, I'm going to write a book. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get a publishing deal for it. I had some help with writing it, which I needed, because whilst I wrote write all my own plays and books and all of that these days in their entirety – Back then, I didn't really, you know, have any great writing experience. Um, and it took off. It did all right. You know, I didn't buy a yacht or anything like that. It did put a small conservatory on the back of my house. Um, <laughs> but more importantly, it got me into the media. You know, put my, put my name out there. And soon afterwards, the gangbuster was picked up by... Um, uh, a TV production company who were making a TV drama. So then I got a gig as a story consultant to this undercover show, which was great fun. And then I'm, you know, so I'm now I'm hanging about with writers, producers, directors, actors. I'm on the radio talking about crime and policing. I'm on the telly talking about crime and policing. The bang, gangbuster got uh, made into a drama documentary. Well, that and the testimony of another couple of undercover cops you know, was, uh, so yeah. And I'm, I'm in the media. So I've gone from a very, very secretive life, um, into one where I'm in the public domain. So did it get fictionalized then to get to the TV level? Well, that, it, it was only a, a drama documentary. Channel four did a show many years ago called undercover cops. And it was me and two other undercover cops, I think giving our testimonies and they dramatized some of our stories. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, the gangbusters never been made into uh, a film or a TV series of its own yet, although it really should be. <laughs> Forgive me. 
so you ended up writing four books to this date. Yeah, so... And have you started to write them on your own now without the, any help because you've learned the process? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've only had help on the first one. You okay. know, the rest, of, the rest have all been mine. And then I've written plays for Radio 4. Wow. Um, you know, so I've written drama and all that kind of stuff. And I've had quite a, an amazing time in the last 20 years. It hasn't been all sweetness and light. It's certainly not been a gravy train, although I'm not pleading poverty. Because you had a um, secondary breakdown, did you? Yeah, I did, yeah. And about... 2004 or five, I think. Um, and that required hospitalization again. So I'm very aware of my mental health. You know, I still take um, a small maintenance dose of medication every day. There's no shame in that. I love to talk about mental health and encourage people for them to talk. I think it's really important. Um, there is no, we all have mental health. Everybody does. And I think that Fitness stuff keeps me sane. Good. Do you do physical stuff? Well, as you can tell by my ample waistline, I'm not exactly found in the gym every day. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I walk. I did over 10,000 steps yesterday, and I'll go and do a few when I get home tonight. I'll Walking's brilliant, isn't it? 10,000. Yeah. I mean, I used to run and all that. 10 years ago, I was doing regular competitive 10Ks, but I'm not anymore. You know, I'm 61. I've got to look after my knees and my hips, I think. Um, so... Yeah, you know, I, I, I like a bar of chocolate, as you can see. I like a glass of red wine, but I love to walk. Which and, chocolate do you prefer? Oh, any. Any? <laughs> any. Right? I'll eat any You're chocolate. You're not fussy. No, 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 not at all. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it's, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm hyper alert to, to, to mental health. We've all got it. We all need to look after it. And if you're having your struggles, please, please talk, seek help, you know, go to your GP, whether it's counselling or therapy, whatever it is. And if the meds work for you, please take them. Don't suddenly think, I felt great for a fortnight and I'm going to ditch them. You know, I've now been on this medication that, and it's a tiny maintenance dose that I take, but I've been on it for, it must be 10, 12, 15 years. And it works for me. It absolutely works. And if people want to explore my mental health techniques, I've done a few TED Talks now, putting Sean Atwood TED Talks on YouTube. I've done talks on happiness, resilience, anxiety. Um, and they're, they're all about 15 or so minutes long. So there's many, many details and tips and techniques that you can employ. Particularly relevant when so many people watching these videos are locked down right now because... Um, prisoners have to come up with ways to cope with that mentally so there's a lot to learn from the prison population right now of course there yeah. is forgive me i yeah. I, I hadn't contemplated that yeah yeah hard time <laughs> yeah 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 thank you yeah my next read so you bounce back you're successful but your name is back out there again now yeah yeah I mean, these things that you've done to the criminal community in the capacity of your work, can't they follow you for a very long time? Now you're back out there, your name's out there, can't, you know, this guy served a such and such a sentence because of you. I'm going to get that bastard when I get out. Uh, isn't anything like that? Yeah, but my, my betrayal, my treachery when I was working undercover was professional, not personal. You know, it's not Yeah, like but I'm saying that they... The criminal community may take it personally. No, 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 no. But, 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 but um, this, yeah, and this is exactly what I'm saying. Okay. My, the, the, 
the the betrayal that I carried out on them yeah. was a professional betrayal. I was doing my job. Yeah. It's not like I was a member of their criminal organization that rolled over and then became an informant. Yeah. That's a completely different type of treachery. Okay. Mine was professional. I was doing a job. And I don't know, but you'll have greater experience of this than mine. Yeah. But I strongly suspect that most of the countless people that me and my colleagues sent to jail as a result of undercover operations, when they're banged up and somebody says to them, how did you get nicked? I bet not very many of them said I was had over by an undercover <laughs> cop. I bet they don't admit to that. They don't look great on your criminal CV, does no. it? That you fell for it. But from what you described earlier, there was a really big criminal organization oh, behind that, that case. Yeah, and these criminal organizations tend to keep going no matter who gets arrested. And they have long memories. Yeah, well. Is that not a risk? Yeah, it is, It is, of course. But there's an element of risk in crossing the road, isn't there? <laughs> um, you know, the, but my solicitor, who was acting for me at the time, when I was writing The Gangbuster, so my first book, my autobiography, telling all the, 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 the tales, um, my solicitor wrote to the Metropolitan Police before the book was published. So this is now some five years, six years after that operation and my breakdown. And they said, what is the current threat level assessment against Peter Blexley? And the Met replied, we can find no current threat. Good. So I then went, right, okay, let's publish and do it in my own name. Because remember, the, the uh, psychiatrist said to me, you've been too many different people for too many years. If you're going to get well again and stay well, you have to be Peter Blexley. I know some of you watching this are worried about Peter, but you just heard that there's no current threat level, so he's okay. Unless I, back in the day when we could go to pubs and bars, there's quite clearly a threat level if I get home too late and too drunk, but that comes from the wife. <laughs> now, when you go into this true crime section of work, which I'm in, you meet people who are from both sides. Have you met anyone who you formerly put away you now work with? Yeah, yeah. One of them contacted me not long ago through social media. Are you able to speak about that and say anything about that? Yeah, I'm not going to mention the name. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that's fair. But, um, yeah, they approached me and they want to meet and, you know, it's been really cordial. So and you met the person? No, no they want to meet. Okay. We haven't yet. But we've exchanged messages and all that stuff. And at some point, if my commitments and allow... You know, then we might just meet and talk about the old days, maybe. Is there anyone that you have met unexpectedly in similar situation? No, fortunately not. Okay. I mean, it's a long time ago now since I was operating undercover. Uh, and I would imagine that, you know, people, people have moved on. One person that I operated against undercover and will remain nameless for the moment has gone on to have a very successful career, um, well-known in the media, and they've come a long, long way from when they negotiated to sell me a parcel of heroin while they had a nine-millimeter pistol down the back of their trousers. <laughs> well, I hope they did a, 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 true, a crime role in the media, perhaps, in, in television. All right, so... You've given your job up, but you've not quite given your job up because you like to investigate and research 
is it cold cases? Well, I mean, I've, I've I've written two books about unsolved murders. On the Run is a compendium of about ten unsolved murders that I went out, researched, and investigated, and then revisited some years later. By which time, some had been solved. Some are still sadly stubbornly unsolved. Um, so, did, did any of your research and investigation help in the solving of those cases? Uh, I investigated the murder. Uh, one of the murders was a guy called uh, Chinadu Iguara who got shot in Cheatham Hill in Manchester, uh, bullet in the head, well, just down the road from Cheatham Hill. And, um, and when I was researching that particular crime, I was in an inexpensive hotel or B&B. I always you know, keep me on expenses because I have to. Got a minicab driver, taxi driver, to take me there. And he said, I will not take you to Cheatham Hill. He said, I won't take you there. He said, I'll drop you near there. He said, I will not take you there. He said, Gonchester. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, he said, you're, you're, you're crazy. He said, don't go there. You know, I'll, I'll take you back to the hotel. Just don't go there. I said, no, no, no. I've got work to do. I'm going there. Anyway, it was pretty obvious after I'd been there for not very long that word had got round that there's this writer poking his nose around. In a pub, not long afterwards, a piece of paper was handed to me under a table, and on it was a phone number, uh, a name rather, and I got a phone number, and I tracked that person down, and I said, and I was told that this person was responsible for shooting Chinadu. So I arranged to meet him in a pub car park on the outskirts of Bolton, travelled back up to Manchester. This was a couple of weeks later. I pull into this pub car park. I'm on my own right, to meet this person who I'm told is a cold-blooded executioner. I get out of the cab. Um, he's there with another man, man of mystery wearing a dark suit and a man of very few words. Anyway, we get out. I have a chat with his man. And I said to him, you shot Chinadu, didn't you? And he laughed, right, which I took as a yes okay uh if justice is sometimes swift and natural let's just say it's all in on the run as to what actually happened to that man not very long afterwards see live by the sword and all that wow so yeah i love going out there and immersing myself amongst a world that I'm familiar with. It's really been the only world I've known during my entire adult life, isn't it? Yeah. Crime, criminals, and policing. Yeah. It's all I've really known. So, yeah, researching unsolved murders was a big, passionate thing of mine. So two books. Uh, my third book, To Catch a Killer, is all about the murder of Alistair Wilson in Nairn, which is truly the most fascinating unsolved crime in the UK in the 21st century. What happened to Alistair? And who was, Third, who was Alistair? 30-year-old banker, father of two young children. Missed a kind of middle of the road, you might say. And yet he's gunned down on his front doorstep in a sort of gangland execution, assassination-type crime, which is still unsolved over 16 years later. And it's riddled with mystery, that Which crime. part of the country? Nairn in Scotland. Nairn. In the, in the Highlands, Nairn. N-A-I-R-N. Nairn, beautiful place, beautiful place. I love the place. I've got a print of it hanging on the wall in my little box bedroom office at home. Wonderful place. 
amazing people, fascinating, fascinating crime, which is now the subject of many podcasts and all of that. But if you want all the original new stuff that's been found, have a look at my book, please, To Catch a Killer. And one day I hope Alistair's uh, murderer will be identified and brought to book. But so around about this time, or a bit before when I'm doing that, um, I get a phone call from a TV company. Will I go and have a meeting with them? They've got this idea on a piece of paper, which they're seeing if they can make work. Um, and essentially it was like, can you film a manhunt? Right? So they interview me, do a little taste of tape on camera, ask me some questions. And out of that was born a very successful ongoing TV show on Channel 4 called Hunted, um, which has been, you know, won awards, been hugely popular. And I did six series of Hunted, four of the main show, and then they started doing a celebrity version, and I did two of the celebrity Hunted. Um, that obviously made my profile much higher because uh, I was being on the telly. So what happens in Hunted? Uh, members of the public pretend to be fugitives and they go on the run. <laughs> and I was chief of the team of investigators that had to track them down and find I think them. I've seen some clips yeah. from this. Yeah. That's where I know you from. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. there's like a command center. That's it. And you're like mouthing off like we're going to, yeah, yeah. Mouthing <laughs> off. I'm giving cogent, coherent instructions, I'll have you know. Right? All right, mouthing off. That, okay, was, that was compelling. Yeah, yeah. So, it was. Yeah, so it's still going. I think they're going to film another series this year. But I was interested to see how some of them um, – like how they, the techniques they employed. Like there was the one was, who was the grey man and he was just walking around the fields. But then there's a the woman who was just going to the pub and getting drunk and yeah. they got her yeah. in no time. And... It's good fun. It's good, good fun show. But, but they've got, to, they've got to go to an ATM, haven't they, to get some money? I, there are clearly and rules. And that like puts them back in the... Yeah, there's rules that apply to the fugitives. But I, yeah. as I always said to my team, I'm not interested in their rules and we are not trying to find out the yeah. rules as they apply to them. If you do do that, I will construe that as cheating and you'll be out the door. You, you did have a very we commanding, um, you do have a very commanding presence in that show. It struck me. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that was fun. You know, raised my profile. Um, Are you not doing any more series of that? No, I left in 2019. Did someone take your role or did they stop? Yeah. No, somebody took over. My, my deputy, Ben, was the, uh, was the chief uh, for the last series of Maine and, celebrity that went out but he's left the show now as well okay it's a really demanding role being chief if you're going to do it properly and but well, you had you the know. characters to do it yeah yeah so but but yeah after we caught them all in series four of the main show we caught them all and that had always been our objective our dream if you will for no one and, and the time yeah i know none of them got their grubby hands on the prize money <laughs> and we were so happy i did ask the producers if we could have the hundred thousand pounds prize money and um, have a, a rap party to end all rap parties. But funnily <laughs> enough, that, that fell on deaf ears. Um, but yeah, and that, then I left there. So that was February 2019. And I was thinking, what's going to be my next major project? You know, what am I going to do with my life? Because I still have an energy and enthusiasm for work that I had when I was half my age. You know, I just love working. Uh, my publisher said, yeah, you can do another book if you you know got the right subject material. And I thought, right, what is the best use of my skills, 
you know, experience, network of people that I've met over the years, and what I'm best known of, best known for. I'm best known for hunting pretend fugitives. I thought instead of writing about unsolved crimes like I've done for my last two books, why don't I go on the hunt for a real fugitive? And, of course, they do not come any more wanted, in my opinion, than six foot six, 40-year-old Liverpudlian, Mr. Kevin Parle, P-A-R-L-E. What did Kevin do? So on the 29th of April, I launched my hunt for Kevin Powell. Right, Kevin Powell is not convicted. Let me make that blatantly clear. He is not convicted of these two murders, but he is very much wanted for the shooting dead of 16-year-old Liam Kelly in June 2004 and the shooting dead of 22-year-old mother of three young children, Lucy Hargreaves, in August 2005. Ghastly, ghastly crimes. For the last 20 months, this has completely dominated my life, um, even you know with lockdown periods, but I've been to Liverpool countless times, travelled to Manchester, London, Warrington. Um, my, all my old stomping grounds. Yeah. Many other places, many other places, Spain. Um, and I've just been on the most remarkable journey, which continues, of course, to this day. And there are only two things that will stop me hunting Kevin Powell. Number one, of course, is his capture. And number two is my death. I will hunt him until I gasp my last. Well, in fact, I'm going to find him. So so he's not convicted of this. What do you believe his motive is? Right. Right. Okay. Now, obviously, I've dealt, I've delved very deeply into the past of Mr. Kevin Powell. And some of what I'm about to say, he ain't going to be very happy about. Tough, pal. Um, he, he came from the south side of the city. Of Liverpool. Right? Yeah. So he, he doesn't come. From Toxteth, Croxteth, Norris Green, you know, Highton. He doesn't come from those tough parts of the city. Um, He lived in Pittville Avenue in the south of the city and came from a very sort of semi-detached kind of background, if I might describe it as that. Went to a private school, you know. um, And Do you know which one? Yeah, it's, I do know, Liverpool College he went to. That was his secondary school. And he went to the primary school, which is just round the corner from it. Um, literally round the corner. A nice looking sort of uh, you know, fee paying private school. Um and I've interviewed people from from those schools who knew him and into his adulthood as well, of course. And people say he's a smart guy, you know, undisputably smart, intelligent guy. That's what I always hear. But in his early days of criminality, shall we say the uh, established or the, the the big shots in Liverpool didn't really trust him. And I think this stems from his background. So they would only let him run the kids, I'm told. Yeah, he wasn't right up there with uh, with what I would call the first division faces, you know. So he got involved with a drug gang, is that what you're saying? Well, I, you know, he's unconvicted of these crimes. What I am saying, 
unequivocally is that Liam's death was motivated by a £200 debt. Mm. Now, bearing in mind Liam's 16, that chimes very closely with what I hear about him in those days only being allowed to kind of like, you know, look after the kids. You know, former schoolmates described him as a clown and uh, Kevin Powell, this is, and, you know, he was one of the Liverpool urchins of football crew, you know, the Liverpool football club crew, but he was a designated driver. You know, this is not a boy born and raised into hard-nosed criminality. But he did get involved in other criminality because I've heard an awful lot about Mr. Powell, um, which you're probably not surprised to hear. And he had lots and lots of money stashed away around about the time that he disappeared. So he clearly had been successful with some of his criminality. Um uh, but he always he had certain ambitions in his criminal career. He wanted to make a lot of money and he wanted a book written about him because around about this time, Curtis Warren's book, Cocky, came out in around about 2000 and apparently Kevin Powell looked at Cocky and said, I want a book written about me one day. Well, Kevin, your ambition has been achieved because there is Manhunt, which is my book published towards the end of last year which tells of my hunt for Paul so far. Um, and I'm very fortunate. You know, a lot of people have enjoyed it and continue to enjoy it. It's now an audio book as well, by the way. Not only that, but not long after I'd started my hunt for Kevin Powell, the BBC got interested in it. And we've had a 12-part podcast called Manhunt, Finding Kevin Powell, which is on BBC Sounds and all the other platforms. And this podcast has won an award and been downloaded over three million times and counting. Wow. Now, this is all part of my strategy to make Kevin Powell the most well-known fugitive on the planet. Because whilst he's unconvicted, I believe a sense of justice is fundamental to all of us. If something is unjust, then we, it hurts, doesn't it? You know, look at Liverpool, where Paul was born and raised and these crimes were committed. Look at the Hillsborough tragedy. Look at that sense of injustice that lingered for 30 years and more, you know, and people have been so keen to try and right the wrongs. Um, Liverpool's got a big sense of injustice and, 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 and Kevin Paul, unconvicted, yes, but needs to stand in front of a court of law and answer the allegations made against him. It's as simple as that. Okay, so people who harm women and kids, people who kill women and kids, violent crimes against women and kids, the underworld looks down upon that kind of a offender. So you would think that this person would not be being hid by the underworld. He is. He is being hit by yeah, the yeah, underworld. Yeah, yeah, there's a big urban myth that um, Kevin Powell is dead, right? It's been a myth that has been propagated very cleverly for years and years and years. And in fact, I have a number of sources, as you can imagine, in the last 20 months, I've been flat out on this. Um, I know that Merseyside police for years believed that myth that he was dead, right? I know that. And what method of death? Was that? Oh, there's various ones, you know. 
I've been told I need to dredge the bottom of the Mersey. Um, a common one is that he was chopped up into bits and thrown into the Mediterranean. Um, but all the time, when I say to any of these people, well, who, where, when, and how was he chopped up, right? They change the subject or they get abusive because nobody can provide any proof of it whatsoever. No one. Somebody tried to get a bit cute with me and send me a timeline about who went where and what was done and how it happened. And that timeline is completely at odds with proven facts. It's a nonsense. And if I just may, Sean, please forgive me. If you listen to our podcast and you read my book, and if you knew the evidence which I've gathered in the last few weeks, which sadly I can't put in the public domain just yet, believe you me, Kevin Powell is alive. If the underworld is hiding him then, and the underworld looks down upon people who murder kids and women, is there a possibility then that he has not done this crime? Liam Kelly was a scally, okay? Okay, I've, you know, that's what many people tell me. But he was 16 years old. He was a kid, a child. Um, you know, denied the opportunity to mature, to grow, to enter manhood, to find a partner, have a family and provide for him. Denied all of that. Three people have been convicted in connection with Liam's murder. Okay? Anthony Campbell pleaded guilty to murder and got a life with 26 years minimum. Okay? Because Campbell admitted his role in calling Liam on to this straightener where Liam got shot. At the same trial, the court was told, although Paul was not in court to answer the allegation, that Paul pulled the trigger. Okay? A man called Peter Sinclair got eight years for disposing of evidence, uh, burning clothing and mobile phones on behalf of Kevin Paul. A young lady gave a false alibi statement for Kevin Paul when he was in police custody, which is what led to him being released on bail. Paul was arrested and released on bail in the early stages of the inquiry, never to be captured by law enforcement again. Okay? I am not a judge and jury. I have not investigated the crimes. My parameters are narrow. I'm merely trying to find Kevin Paul. But what I've just said then are facts. Doesn't this produce some problems for you, though, because you're no longer with the police and you could be viewed by the police as a vigilante just going on his own mission? And also, if because Paul's not convicted, couldn't he take some kind of action against you? He's welcome to sue me, but I've never said anything that gives him any grounds to sue me upon. I've just stated facts. And if he sued you, he, would, he would be traceable. Exactly. Okay. Any solicitor is very welcome to try and sue me. That's absolutely fine because I will then go to law enforcement and say, don't you think there's a bit of a case for bugging their offices and finding out where he is? Yeah, I think that would, I think you'd be on pretty firm ground there. Um, despite client confidentiality. And what about, what about the police viewing you as a, on your right. mission? Right. I have a very interesting relationship with <laughs> Merseyside Police. I've been up front and open with them, you know, pretty much from the start until one senior officer told me, we do nothing with your information, right? Uh, at which point I cut them out of the loop. But then my investigation got to a stage whereby I simply had to notify Merseyside Police 
but I'm not going to speak to an officer who does nothing with my information. I put that fact into the public domain and then I had a rather public exchange with an assistant chief constable from Merseyside Police. Anyway, I um, what I can say is that in December, last month, I had a meeting with Merseyside Police. I made a presentation to them which consisted of 120 PowerPoint slides and more and they tell me that they are um, doing something and as soon as they update me and I can update the public, then I will. I hope they show the commitment to finding Kevin Powell that I have done in the last 20 months. If they do, his capture is inevitable. Wow. Powerful stuff. And, you know, it's a heinous crime and somebody's got some prison sentence coming. Can I just speak about Lucy's murder for a moment? I yeah, think of course. it's right that Absolutely. I give some kind of balance. Yeah. Um, Lucy has been described to me as being as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside. Um, in fact, Lucy's partner, Gary Campbell, who is believed to be the intended target of the attack on her house, is now talking to me and has given me the most moving testimony you can imagine about the horrific events that happened that night as he was upstairs in bed with their two-year-old. Um, that will, of course, feature in Manhunt Finding Kevin Powell when we come back because the BBC have commissioned more episodes. And as soon as I can put the information that is in my head into the public domain without benefiting Kevin Powell and his cronies, our podcast will be back and people are clamouring for it to come back. If you haven't listened to it, please do, because you'll be getting up to speed, ready for when um, there are major developments in the story. And it's a manhunt that you did the audio book for yourself, and we joked earlier about women's voices and cross-dressing. That's what I meant earlier when I, <laughs> when I said about cross-dressing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so people, this is the only audio book that Peter's got, and it's in his own voice. And I know, yeah. especially in America, um, they're going to really love your accent and the way you come across. So, you know, by all means, go and check out this audio book. We'll put the link down there in the description box as well for that. Um, are you going to do um, the rest of your audio books in your own voice? I may do, but they're with a the previous publisher. So I yeah. guess I'll have to drop them an email and say, you know. And for the uh, manhunt, for the female dialogue, can you give us a, an example of the kind of voice you used for that? No, I just <laughs> slightly altered my intonation. No Monty Python-esque. No, 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 no. And a, sort of, a suitable pause where needed to make sure that it was obviously me using someone else's testimony as opposed to my own. You know, in, a, in, a, in a perfect world where funds were endless, we might have hired actors and all of that kind of stuff. But, of course, because of lockdown, you know, I recorded the audio version um, in the back bedroom of my house. You know, the audio is brilliant and cuts muster because, you know, I soundproofed it and and uh, did it during the dead of night when there was no external noises, got the professional mics and mixers and, and all of that. But, yeah, people have, have put some great reviews uh, about both the paperback and the audio, which is very nice. Yeah, I had to do some female parts yesterday with James in here, didn't I, for our Jimmy Savile documentary. 
We've got a four-hour-plus documentary coming out about Jimmy Savile in the next few months that we've been working on for almost a year. Uh, All right, so um, the internet is a wild place. Yep. And I imagine you must have had some people attacking you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's that been like? Yeah. We get it all the time. It just confirms that we're doing a good job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Clearly, there are some people that have got Kevin Powell's interests at heart. Why would you have a dead man's interests at heart? That's because he's not a dead man and he's alive. And the numbskulls don't realise that when they troll and they abuse and they post pictures of my house online, on one occasion a picture of my house with an accurate description of the bedroom that I sleep in, it tells me two things. Number one, he's clearly alive. And number two, there is someone that I should describe as perhaps not being on my side very close to home. Give yourselves away, boys and girls, as much as you like, because that's all you're doing. You're just giving yourselves away. Wow. All right, we've had a blockbuster of a episode with these hard-hitting stories today, Pete. I really appreciate you coming in. Is there anything you'd like to say to the viewers in conclusion? Well, thank you. Um, Yes, I'd like to say thank you very much for watching and listening. Um, Please don't think that this book manhunt and this podcast is about profit. It's not. In the last 20 months, I have earned £13,000 in connection with my hunt for Kevin Powell. And I have ploughed every penny of it back into planes, trains, automobiles, and all of that. I have not put one carrot on my family's dining table as a result of my hunt for Kevin Powell. It is all about Liam and Lucy. Please read, listen, spread the word, because raising public awareness of Kevin Powell and the crimes that he's wanted for is how we will shrink the world for him. And we are going to squeeze the globe so tightly that his six foot six head pops up somewhere and law enforcement can slap the handcuffs on. Well, he needs to answer the allegations made against him. And thank you to everybody. And please check out Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, which is what it used to be called, Lee. What's it called now? Law Enforcement Action Partnership. Okay, and these are, a lot of them are ex-cops, ex-prosecutors, judges who have been involved for years in putting people away and have realized the futility of drug laws and how we can only reduce the harm. People are always going to take some kind of substance or other and that drug laws have created more harm than they were intended to stop. So, you know, this is a massive change happening before our eyes right now in society. Society's reaped, there's a tipping point. It's irreversible, like you said, the floodgates are open and worldwide, we are gonna see this reversal of it all, but the time period at which it happens in each country is gonna depend upon you. Because voters are what all politicians care about is votes. They get up there and they pretend to be tough on crime and they say we need these tight drug laws. 
But when they're just locking up young people for low-level possession, um, you know, in America, it was the people who voted for it at state level that overturned it. Parents sick of kids getting thrown in jails where they've been busted for weed. They're going to get turned onto heroin and get neo-Nazi tattoos and criminal records and come out and they can't get jobs. It's absolutely ridiculous, but those kids are then clients for private prisons for the rest of their lives. The American public got so sick of it, they voted at the state level to turn this stuff on its head. And the rest of the world needs to do the same. Those politicians who are up there, you know, saying, oh, we can't do this, we can't do that, we've got to keep drug laws tight. And behind the scenes, all their cronies have got these private prison contact contracts. It's absolutely disgusting. But by putting that information out there, exposing this shakedown on the taxpayers, which is what it is, it's your money that's paying for all this bullshit to house these people, to, to arrest someone like Escobar, to, to track someone and find someone like Escobar costs hundreds of millions. So they go for the low-hanging fruit. That's how they fill the prisons. And it's your kids they're coming for. They've built private prisons all over the world. So let's stop it in our tracks. Leap are doing absolutely phenomenal work. So please go down and check out the link for Leap. Is there anything else you'd like to add on to that? I just echo your words entirely because yeah. the war on drugs cannot and will not ever be won. It's caused so much harm, we must have a radical rethink. And America has spent $2 trillion of your taxpayer money on a war on drugs. And look at the state of what's going on there with fentanyl and heroin and the, how the opium it, it increased and the cartels. It's, it's just, it's like Al Capone times 10. So they knew prohibition didn't work. Drug laws don't work. Stop it. All right. So huge thank you to all people watching this. Please let us know in the comments what you thought. I know Peter's got a plethora of books with tons of cases he could possibly talk at length on. So, you know, he's been very generous with his time today. Perhaps we can cajole him into coming back and do some more. So let us know in the comments how you feel about that and if you've got any questions for him. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers. It's just surged recently. Subscription logo is in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen almost up to 700k now so yeah huge thank you to all the people who subscribed so far this year it's been at a record level and it's absolutely blown us away huge thank you to all the people who've gone down in the description box and checked out our other playlists our socials our donation links and huge thank you of course to joe and james for being here today our sound engineer and our cameraman all right are we allowed to bump um bump or what shall we <laughs> thank you very much peter that was brilliant cheers yeah, well thank done. you thanks thanks for having me